Welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer and we try to understand what they're talking about. I'm Matt Brown. With me is Chris Kavanagh. This is the Decoding Zone, where decoding is done. Are you wearing your decoding pants, Chris? Are you ready to decode? My decoding pants are commando. That's a high eye roll. And I have to say, Matt, you're sounding melodious and mellifluous. I don't know, something's changed. It's like there's a warmth to your voice that I... I haven't mm. detected before. So Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for helping me figure out my microphone settings, Chris. That's what you wanted oh. to hear, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. What kind of you to say, no, no, no. That's just, it's nothing to do with that. Just noting what a wonderful voice you have. It's, you know, we have new listeners every episode, probably Matt, and they, they're just wondering what, what a beautiful voice he has. And now they're glad that I, as their surrogate, have voiced those feelings. So you're welcome, audience. You're welcome. <laughs> you just want the whole world to know that I don't know my way around the Microsoft Windows sound settings system panel thing or maybe bob thing. See, the thing is, my I also don't know my way around that. I'm a Mac man. I'm a Mac man now. I'm fully converted for probably over a decade. But what mm. I do know my way around is this little thing called Google. <laughs> I'm quite an expert at it. So I, I find the answer to the questions with you know, surprising ease. I'm not saying anything negative. I'm just talking about my ease with that technology. That's all. Okay. Well, I have you. That's the main thing. You'll, you'll sort things out for to me. Like I do for right. my mom. This is the circle of life, Chris. I solve my mother's computer problems. You solve mine. And one day, some young child somewhere will be solving yours. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, ah, uh, yes. Well, it's, uh, I look forward to that day, but I'm still too hip and with it for now. They can teach me nothing. <laughs> so, Matt, we dropped a segment which used to be, I can't remember what we called it. It was something like, you know, checking in on the guru sphere. Oh, I think it was called Weinstein Watch. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I, there's too much goings on. There's goings on. In the guru sphere, maybe that's a, a good name for it. Have you noticed any of these? Which which one has been dangling this a shiny ball in front of you? <laughs> dangling keys. <laughs> oh, oh, so much going on, so much going on. The Weinstein's never fail to disappoint, do they? They they're never quiet for long. There's always something going on, and this is this is even better because it's got everyone's involved. Eric Weinstein is involved. Brett Weinstein is tangentially. And Alexandros Marinos, our favorite person in the world, is a key player. For those who don't know Matt, Alexandros Marinos is a Brett Weinstein superfan. He uh, kind of emerged from that ecosystem. He's a CEO of a tech company. And there is no man on earth that, that likes Brett more than Alexandros likes him. And he's, he's kind of spun out a little niche for himself, a minor gurudom, if you will, which is making insanely long threads to basically defend Brett or whatever asinine heterodox take he has for the day. And a lot of it revolves around promoting ivermectin, hinting at vaccine dangers, hidden unacknowledged dangers. He's, he's a minor sycophant of Robert Malone as well. So uh, we did cover him previously on the episode with David Pizarro when we talked about the Better Skeptics Project. So but anyway, that's the introducing, introduction to our cast of characters. So, Well, Sam Harris is also involved because it started off with Eric Weinstein basically inserting himself into this 
thing between Brett and Sam. Now, what, what was it? What was this thing between Brett and Sam? Um, Eric Weinstein tweeted something about, you know, you don't throw your friends and family under the bus, personal relationships, all that stuff. I love everybody involved. Can't we just be kind and civil to each other? So nice sentiments. Um, but what was the beef, Chris, with Brett and Sam? Brett and Sam are beefing over vaccines. And Sam is currently coming out of now the maelstrom of attention around his comments over Hunter Biden's laptop and his he's released a podcast actually just today at the time of recording, clarifying his statements on the trigonometry pod. So that's what put Sam Harris into the news cycle and what led to Eric issuing a tweet reminding everyone that Sam had went to dinner with Dave Rubin. <laughs> so he posted a picture of them together and, and basically declaring that he thought Sam was pretty much wrong about almost everything, but that Eric would never... He is far too principled a man to ever, even conscience, throwing a dear friend to the howling wolves. But he will, you know, acknowledge that all the criticisms that people raised are basically valid and Sam has a lot of problems in the way they looks. But Eric would never, he would never <laughs> stoop so low to not have a friend's back, so... Thank you, Chris. So that's the setup. That's the setup. So Alexandros Marinos, being the Brett superfan that he is, dunks on Eric Weinstein, quoting him, saying, what Brett is doing concerns me because Eric Weinstein did not go along all the way with Brett's uh, descent into anti-vaxxerism. And Alexandros remembers this. He remembers. Pepperidge Farm remembers, Chris. And that's what he said. You can say whatever you want now, but we remember. So that's that's a bold move really to to be such a super fan of brett weinstein to dunk on eric weinstein for not supporting his brother strongly enough in alexandros's view in his anti-vaxxer takes so the like eric made a a tweet which was suggesting why can't we all get along i love brett and sam and so on let's not descend into Barbary, right? The, like uh, throwing our friends under the bus. And that Alexandros links to a video where Eric on Rebel Wisdom made some slightly disparaging comments about Brett. But essentially, he was doing that Eric thing of both sides in everything. He was yeah. saying, no, I don't know how Brett can be so certain in about Ivermectin, and, but I do think people are wrong to focus on Brett, because he's just responding to the information ecosphere and that kind of thing. So it was like, yeah. it was like relatively mild criticism from Eric yeah. of Brett's position. Yeah, that's right. That's the funny thing about it. Alexandros doesn't appreciate it. Seems this is this is Eric's normal modus operandi. Like both sides, is um, you know, it's all very complicated. Not to plant his flag too strongly anywhere, really. Yeah. Least of all on something like this, um, which is quite clever of Eric, really. Before you go on to that thread, may I suggest that we do a dramatic reading? I'll play the part of Alexandros and you can be Eric for this Twitter exchange. I think it would help if we were to <laughs> dramatize it for people. Agreed. So, Agreed. Okay. <laughs> so just just channel Eric, you know, hmm, what would Eric, how would Eric say that? And I'll, I'll do the same for <laughs> Alexandros. So, so here we go. You can say whatever you want now, but we remember... Pardon me, but who are you? A nobody. <sighs> me too. Nobody to nobody. A word to the wise. Maybe stop trying to stir the pot in your neighbour's family. I don't remember you at our family dinner table growing up. Find another hobby. Be well. If you wanted this to be read only by the people in your family's dinner table, consider sending them a private message. 
Are you having a reading problem? Try reading the lines first and then in between them. Good day. Period. Full stop. Sir. Another full stop. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel that Richard Dawkins got channeled there slightly more than, than Eric. But the, it's, it's, that's my generic that's my generic non-local specific pretentious ponderous voice. It happens to be Pompous Englishman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is. Yeah. I do like somebody pointed out that it isn't good day, sir. Like as you noted, it's good day, sir. Sir. <laughs> yeah. now, now, Chris, I've been good day, sir, and I've been and I've been asked this question: Who are you? Who are you? This is this is Eric's yes. No, but not uh, Eric. You were no. not asked that by Eric. No, it was Brett, wasn't it? It was Brett. You were asked who you were, and uh, well, uh, so, were you told to so, be well? So, yeah, I think I probably was. But, Chris, this is the thing. This is why. Look, there's, there's a method to my madness. This is why I was doing it in a pompous English voice, is because that's Eric and Brett's image of the sort of stip up lippish offended dignity, taking the ultimate, ultimate higher ground and putting someone in their place. And they imagine somebody from the 1800s wearing a cravat when they do this. It's very Yeah, funny. well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure that exact image crops into their mind, but I do believe they are channeling that energy. And, you know, we often invoke this concept of civility porn. And I I think that's exactly an illustration of what it is. But I wrote on a tweet, I say good sir, I do judge you may have accidentally promulgated anti-inoculation missives. Perchance, may we discuss this like civilized gentlemen? I know you to be of highly esteemed character and superb critical faculties. It would bring me such joy to resolve this minor trifle. <laughs> so, I feel that captures... I wrote that actually when I was listening to some podcast, some heterodox podcast where they were the waxing lyrical about their ability to have these kind of conversations. And of course, it was a conversation which was extremely indulgent where they all basically agree on everything that they're saying, but they still cannot help backpacking each other for having it. So, so yeah. Yeah, Matt, that's a, that's a frustrating thing, isn't it, about the heterodox sphere? It is, it is. But it brings us joy. It brings us joy. It does. It does spark joy. That's right. And uh, the other thing to mention, and we won't dwell on this, we're not possessed by the demon of anger, but our little segment, our little minor decoding of John Ferracchi and Jonathan Pajot finally reached the lofty airs of Pajot's attention space. And he tweeted about it and he basically, you know, rather unsurprisingly found it um Wanting What's that word sophomoric Want. and uh, wanting, yes, and that we are silly materialists, we didn't understand the complexity of the thing that he was discussing, and, and we don't understand these complexities about demons and what he actually meant. And um, we're trying to invoke silly, low understandings of demons. Yeah, so that's a shame, but it was inevitable. Um, yeah, so Jonathan's uh, rejoinder to us is that uh, he says, uh, demons are real beings. Atheists just don't know what a real being is. And if something cannot be physically circumscribed in space, they for some reason cannot see it as a real being, which is completely ridiculous. Yeah, you know, non-physical, but real beings, yes. Oh, also, yes, uh, when I, I mentioned 
to him that you don't need to travel back to the Middle Ages to see people being persecuted for being witches or demons. Uh, and that the symbolic interpretivist stance that they go into, which we covered, tends to be something that is a favored pastime of the theologians and intellectual set of religious traditions, but it kind of glosses over a lot of the prevalent interpretations. And the interesting thing is that he referred to those as the lowest folk interpretation of demons. But the interesting thing for me is like uh, Pajot's audience, because he's cultivated an audience of religious people and, you know, reactionaries and so on, their defense and their kind of riffing on it reveals the game quite clearly because you had people coming in and uh, making various comments about the nature of demons and that if you just don't understand what spiritual energy is and all this kind of things. But but somebody also took, not took offense, but they responded asking him to expand about this uh, notion of low folk interpretation and said that, you know, we're not lacking for evidence of demons physically interacting in the world and that Christians do grant the presence of a material, physical energy, uh, evil entities can be. So basically, they made the point that um, agentic transpersonal intelligence that can embody themselves by parasitic possession is the same thing, basically, as saying intelligent evil, evil beings, right? And uh, yeah, mm. I, I, yeah, I do like that a lot of the defenders were, they were either invoking the literal demons that he doesn't want to directly invoke, mm. or they were just casting out very straightforward appeals to supernaturalism. So, yeah, that's the funny thing. Peugeot, for all his manifest intellectual deficiencies, is quite good at obfuscation and deflection, but his fans are not necessarily. <laughs> and even though Peugeot can walk that tightrope between metaphor and reality forever and ever they keep falling off they, they, they uh, don't quite get it but there's a beautiful exchange that i just saw but then so pajot quotes someone who's saying angels and demons are pure spirit how hard is this to grasp and he responds it is hard to grasp if you're a materialist who thinks that spirit is just a kind of invisible matter like in Ghostbusters, rather than a causal pattern which manifests in phenomena. <laughs> right? That's pretty good. That's pretty good in itself. Like so. Um, but somebody underneath responds, I'm going to be honest, I'm pretty sure that I agree with you on this one, but I have no clue what the phrase causal pattern which manifests in phenomena means. I understand and agree with the pure spirit part, but can someone explain? And Jonathan responds... For goodness sakes, a law is a causal pattern which manifests in phenomena. If you ask your buddy for a beer, that is a causal pattern which manifests in phenomena. So, there you have it, <laughs> Demons are just, it's just the same as asking someone for a beer. Same thing. Same thing. Where's yep. the confusion? Idiots. <laughs> 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 uh, that's us told. We will retract that episode in due course, obviously. But uh, the Demon Discourse promises to continue to deliver gems. It's going to be great. Um, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's uh, I, I'm all in on Demon Discourse, and I just can't wait until we get egregores, demons, and leprechauns. That's what I'm really into. That's Demons are old news. We all know what they are. They're patterns of meaning, like asking your 
buddy for a beer. Well, if Peugeot keeps this up, I'm going to pin him down. I Look, demons are old hat. Let's talk turkey. What about the Easter bunny? I want to know about the Easter bunny. What's the deal with him? That, that's a causal pattern that manifests itself in phenomena. So You're just being a, a a New Year feast bro night, Matt. I'm sorry. Go get uh, back to your nineties a- internet. Leave them alone. It's <laughs> a cheap <laughs> shot, huh? Sorry, sorry. The Easter money's off, <laughs> off out of bounds. Okay. Yeah. That guy works hard. Um <laughs> So, yeah, this is uh, probably a fitting introduction, apart from the fact that I'm, I'm very sorry for all the people that, uh, that, you know, this is basically Twitter minutiae, but it is it is the sense-making. <laughs> this is our lives. This is all we've got. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's true, but it's also the case that for all those people who like to think of Twitter as a completely self-contained little universe onto itself, which never interacts with the actual world, I have news for you. Twitter, it just gives you the means to see people writing down what they are otherwise saying in long form podcasts or on their TV shows or that kind of thing. So the obfuscation that we see in those tweets is also evident in the podcasts that we cover and all of the other content that you see all over the space. And we're going to look at some of that this week as we get into the long threatened, long overdue triple sense-making death threat video that you've been dying to dive into. Is that fair to say? I have been chafing at the bit. Absolutely. Sense-making about sense-making is the name of the video, and we are going to be sense-making about sense-making about sense-making or sense-making cubed for short. You know, it's an extremely meta move from us. We are going to sense make about their sense making about sense making. That's right. And if that's too meta for you, then just stop listening now. If the water's too spicy, get out of it and stop eating the chili. <laughs> we uh, um, now, <laughs> what's going to happen? Just to mention that is that you might notice an overabundance of metaphors that are bad in the, <laughs> in this episode from us, from us primarily, and it's inevitable because it's so infectious. This, the, Richard Dawkins referred to Jordan Peterson in an interview as being addicted to or drunk on metaphors and symbols. And this is a very apt description. These guys, mm. there is no metaphor that they <laughs> have ever met that they dislike. They're, they're intoxicated <laughs> by metaphors. And sometimes you have to dive into metaphors within metaphors to understand what they're talking about it's it's inception level stuff you you have to go deeper to get out that's the only way on the spectrum of shape rotator to a word cell they break the needle totally break it off they've got all the way around in the sense that they are word cells right word cells (laughs) not shape rotators they're not shape rotators they're word cells they're clearly word cells Yes, that's right. Clearly that's right. I wonder. Yeah. You see, your metaphor confused me, but it's already it's infected our discourse. But um, so what this is, as we've said, making sense of sense making, featuring Daniel Schmachtenberger, Jimmy Wheel, and Jordan Hall. And Matt, we have a theme that we are supposed to be like loosely sticking to um, the past while, which is sense making about the technosphere, the um, season though- of tech. The season of tech? Yeah, I think that's what we called it. That's what we called it. Yeah, so so when that happens, Matt, you sometimes hear a little, a little something. Something a bit like this. It's the coding the news. Tech season. Tech season. Tech, 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 tech. Season. 
It's the Golden Baguru. Ten season. It is yeah. still the tech season. You might have thought it finished, but here's my case for why this is a fitting episode for our tech season. It is that Daniel Schmachtenberger has been doing the rounds with Tristan Harris. He appeared on Joe Rogan. He's somebody that talks about the dangers of social media and technology run rampant. He's a bit like Jerome Larnier in this regard. Jordan Hall is somebody who made his money from investing in, I think it was Winamp or, you know, one of those early codec internet audio things. So he has a foot or had a foot in the tech sector and has metaphors that derive from that experience. And Jimmy Wheel is, I think, a kind of spiritual guru type for the technorati. He's somebody that I can see leading workshops on how to get into your primal groove for the CEOs of tech companies. So this is why I think the sense makers, they are a little bit connected to the technospheres because I, I think these people, they are the kind of people that operate as potential gurus for people in tech spheres who might be more wary of your Christian or explicitly alternative health coded gurus that's my pitch what do you think uh yeah that'll do that'll do as we'll hear there's an awful lot of sort of corporate tech speak and a lot of these concepts like game b and coherence and stuff is is kind of a tech utopian thing so it's got that flavor to it it's also got a lot of other bits to it too but look i'll allow it i'll allow it as they say but before we get into it chris i just wanted to let listeners know about my personal journey and embarking on this material because it's two hours and 40 minutes of sense making, and it is pretty oh. meta. And the subjective experience. So, what's this? Autoethnography. The subjective experience of engaging. <laughs> Put that away. I don't need to see that. <laughs> <laughs> it's something. It's really something. I encourage everyone to give it a go. Most people last about 10 or 20 minutes and then their brains just float away. And mine certainly did too. And what I had to do just as a discipline. I needed to sit down and force myself to take notes. And when I noticed that my brain was just disappearing off with the fairies, I stopped and I rewinded it and I tried to pick up the thread. And it was a gargantuan enterprise. And I'm very proud of myself. I made it all the way to the end. And uh, we'll link to my, my mega thread, which is just a straight up summary of everything they said. Um, but uh, I, just want, I just want people to acknowledge that I... I suffered the effort you put in. Well, the yeah. thing that I think is an important key to that thread, because I didn't get this the first time I read it. This was you actually engaging in sense making. You were trying to extract what the the kind of main point of the discussion was, right? Like you, yes, you mm -hmm. took a couple of digs and stuff, but you were actually trying to summarize the arguments yes. that was happening. So you, it is not a thread that is purely poking fun. It's more like trying to say, what the hell are they saying? I may have been the first person in history to use Twitter in good faith. I just, I didn't, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just yeah, tried I to summarize. You did dunk, you did dunk did on dunk. occasion. <laughs> that's understandable. And, you know, while we are doing this confessional session about our experience with the sense makers, I will also say 
that from all the content we've covered, and we've covered terrible people, we've covered Scott Adams, we have J.P. Sears, we've had four-hour indulgent conversation between Douglas Murray and, and Eric Weinstein. We have been put through the ringer. But this content, I had the same experience. It's like, it's almost like a kind of Douglas Adams science fiction object where your mind can only concentrate <laughs> on it for 20 minutes and then slips off. It's so dense, the thought that's contained within it, that it, your brain can only focus on it for 20 minutes. And I find on multiple occasions, I was kind of listening and I was following the script, making notes and stuff. And then I was listening for about 20, 30 minutes. And I realized I've been listening an hour and I, I had took nothing in for the past 40 minutes and they were still talking about the same thing that I previously remembered them talking about. And uh, that was weird. It happened a couple of times and I'm listening to everything at times two speed at minimum. <laughs> and even still, it was very hard to get through. And I, at first, I resented them for this. I resented them <laughs> for what they'd put into the world and how many words they were using to say such very simple concepts. But I, I had a whole journey with this content because after mm. a while, I came to appreciate it as a kind of performance art. Like I appreciated the artistry of sense making about this love of metaphors and yes, anding each other. It, there's a kind of appreciating it as a craft. And then I, and I liked it. And then I took a gap, <laughs> then I came back to it. And I, I listened to some other content of the people talking to other people. And then I got annoyed again. And I came back and I was like, I'd lost the love of the metaphors and kind of understood where their deeper project often took them into. And it just made me again return to my original thing that we can enjoy it. But there's, there's some things that this stuff connects to, which is not so great. And uh, yeah, so... Anyway, that was my journey yeah. with the content. It's a fascinating thing, the journey. I mean, Bad Stats has also described it as being impressive performance art. And it is. It's like it's like watching multiple Samuel Beckett absurdist plays one after the other. You know, where there's people sitting in pots and there's lights going on and off and they're saying incomprehensible things. It's completely meaningless, but it, it, it's about nothing, like a Seinfeld episode. But yeah. there's so much about there's so much about nothing, and there's something impressive about building something. But it's a bit like the Matrix, Chris. Nobody can be told what it is. You have to be shown it. And listeners, buckle up, buckle up. We are going to take you on a ride. We are. We're gonna. We're gonna take you on a ride with the clips now, and there will be a fair amount of them. So, so be prepared. But the last framing note I'll make about this is that for those who aren't going to watch and don't have the visual component, they're in a, a quite nice room, sitting on an elongated couch. Three guys, middle-aged guys, sitting, and and there's a brown table in front of them with various esoteric instruments thrown around it. I think those are esoteric Buddhist implements, and I'm kind of wondering if they were specifically chosen for some symbolic purposes, or whether they are there purely because that's in that person's house. <laughs> they have some, you know, uh, Buddhist paraphernalia lying around on their desk, but it's. Everything in the video and everything about the way they interact with each other creates the impression that something of profound importance and complexity is being communicated. There are deep thoughts. This is a deep conversation about an important topic. Everything 
gives the signal that that is there. And we often talk about how the gurus are better than academics, better than politicians at presenting this appearance of wisdom. And this definitely has it. All of my internal signals were saying something important is being communicated here. So it's just it just to illustrate that the form is very important to mm. to the sense making enterprise. I think. Yeah, the visual component is is important. Um, at times, uh, Jordan Hall, it appears like he's meditating uh, when he's got um, his others- eyes closed and he's ruminating, kicking in every. He doesn't want the senses to interrupt the consumption of the information. And there's uh, Jordan Hall on one side and Daniel Schmachtenberger on the other, and Jimmy Wheel is in the middle. And Jimmy Wheel, they're all, you know, they're all nice looking guys, all all look, you know, relatively healthy and and, and well-kept. But Hmm. but Jimmy Wheel's got these massive bags under his eyes, and he's the kind of slightly shamanistic guy. So I'm just wondering, like, was he on a hard sense making bender the night before and he had to get up early for this session or or you know maybe he suffers from insomnia like i do but he's got tremendously impressive bags under his eyes and i say this as somebody who often has bags under their eyes so just just okay. flagging that up Matt. okay all right so look at the visual image um let's get started yeah your mind palace is ready now let's start filling up those rooms so let's start with the obvious question um we've got two of them answering this so what is sense-making? Let's go with Daniel Schmachtenberger first. What is sense-making? Honestly, I'm kind of interested in hearing your narrative on why sense-making is important. Why this question, and I'm not actually going to name the question yet, whatever the question is, why it is not just important, but central. What I think the strange attractor that draws us all here together is sense-making It's about the exploration into what is real. And what is meaningful is bound to what's real. And Mm -hmm. we find that we have the, at least have the experience of having choice. And we're trying to find out how to orient our choice. And so sense-making to inform choice-making is what is reality? What is my relationship with reality? what is fundamentally meaningful as a basis for how I can make choices that are more aligned with what I find meaningful. Hmm. Nice. (sighs) Nice. Nice. That was nice. That was pretty nice. Daniel Schmachtenberger has an interesting way of talking, right? Because he kind of creates these quite intricate compound sentences where mm. every word <laughs> is kind of like layered with significance. But they're, they're basically said sense making about what is real and our relationship to find out what is real. Yeah, like the scope is ambitious, shall we say. It's about figuring out what is real and what is meaningful and then how to make choices based on that. So it's everything, basically everything. What what's real? What exists? How to understand it? Everything. What what does it what does it all mean? The answer is 42 probably, but it's life, the universe and everything, right? It's yeah. sense making is is understanding everything. Yes, well, or 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 sense making something else. Let's see. Here's Jimmy Wheels' answer to the question which is which shall not be named. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think mine's probably 
many layers of abstraction below these framings, although I totally, you know, track and, and appreciate what you guys are also saying. Um, my basic gut sense is, hey, back to complicated versus complex. Mm. Um, we're probably not going to solve the complex, wicked existential problems we face with individual horsepower playing rivalrous games. We're probably going to need to get together and be able to create a higher form of collective intelligence and sense making. And what I've been seeing lately, paying attention to this space, is it's starting to bubble up, but it feels like a wildly unstable element. And it's breaking my heart slash freaking me out slash concerning me that we, our efforts to create group coherence seem to be going so badly so far. And so I'm deeply committed to figuring out what are the rate limiters slash Achilles heels missing links that can help us at least start, you know, failing forward, making new, better, different mistakes. Oh. That, that, so that's clearer. Um, yeah, you got it. Now, Indiv individuous horsepower playing rivalrous games. Was that what he said? Something along those lines. Yeah. So Jamie's referring there to um, game A. Game A. Oh, game A. You already want to get on the game A, man. Are you I know, ready? I don't, I know. We don't want to get <laughs> into ready? game A. No, we're not going to get into game A yet. But uh, so, so we have to sort of, there's so much jargon being used there you have to refer to a kind of a sense-making dictionary to figure out what they're referring to. So cohesion is good. They want more cohesion. Collective intelligence is good. A, a higher form of collective intelligence. Yeah. Playing those rivalries games, that's kind of game A, which is kind of everything that's happening now. Everything, all the organizations, the universities, the linear thinking, the capitalism, everything, everything, everything that's been gone on perhaps since some deep shamanistic past. So sense-making is not that. It's something better, I think. So there's also, you've seen at the very start of that clip, this kind of feature which will come up again and again. And maybe this is a good thing that we start with highlighting this explicit thing, rule uh, omega. But you noticed at the start that Jamie kind of said, well, my, you know, my take is not going to be as complex as your guys. But like, I completely agree with your guys take, which is great. So here's my trifling take. And that's interesting because actually the dynamic that we'll see in this conversation is a little bit like, I think I like Jamie the best out of them because he does have a slightly self-deprecating quality to himself a lot more than the force of nature that is Jordan Hall, <laughs> the, the <laughs> eagle monster that you'll see rearing up throughout the conversation. We've already covered Jordan Hall in another episode you can go back and enjoy. And he comes across as like quite domineering and a little bit arrogant in, in various spaces. And Daniel Schmachtenberger, on the other hand, is sort of like a Yoda figure on the sidelines who, you know, eventually yep. comes in to offer wisdom, but he's, he, he's a bit more ponderous than mm. uh, Jimmy and Jordan. So it's, it's yeah. interesting but, dynamic. Yeah, and that little back and forth there where they don't disagree with each other or they don't really have different definitions. Rather, they are elaborating on what the other person said or providing a different viewpoint. And this is very much in line with the sense-making modus operandi, which is just that, you know, it's like different people feeling the elephant. I think they actually use this analogy. And there's a lot of different ways of talking about it, but we might say that it is 
<sighs> actually, it's interesting. It seems like you actually have to talk about it in many different ways because it is the kind of thing that cannot be conveyed effectively in language. You know, it's the matrix. Unfortunately, no one can be told what coherence is, but we can actually tell a lot of different stories. It's uh, become the blind man with the elephant. And after a little while, we might be able to in ourselves grasp perhaps what is being pointed at. You know, someone's touching the trunk, someone else is fondling the legs, that kind of thing. And they're all different viewpoints. And there's like an infinitude or a multiplicity of different ways to describe something and understand something. And you keep elaborating and riffing on those understandings to get sense-making happening. What you're invoking there, Matt, is the omega principle or the omega rule. So let's let the sense makers take it away with what that is. I don't know if you've ever even expressed rule omega to Jamie, but he's just doing it. Yeah. And he's kind of openly inquiring into the questions that are really alive. And it's a little bit easier for us to riff off what each other is saying because we've got some recently shared language on these things. And, but the rule omega is actually a really simple practical thing that I, towards coherence that I would like everybody here to get is if, if Jordan and I are talking, or if you and I are talking, like we, we have this, and I think we naturally have it, but it's worth making explicit, is if you say something that sounds ridiculous to me, or batshit crazy or wrong, I actually give the benefit of the doubt that you might have a reason that I didn't understand first. So rather than just default into you're probably wrong, I'll ask more questions. And, and that giving the benefit of the doubt that you actually might have something useful to say increases my making sure that I understand you before I'm responding. And that actually, and the disagreeing with something that you weren't even saying because I didn't seek to understand well enough creates very turbulent flow rather than laminar flow breaks down coherence, mm -hmm. right? If people could just do that yeah. towards coherence, if they could just give the benefit of the doubt that each other, that everyone has some signal. So, so Matt, a lot to say there, but I'm interested to get your thoughts on Rule Omega, but I, I do want to just note the dynamic there that Jamie doesn't know, you know, maybe he's never had it explicitly explained to him, whereas Jordan and Daniel are familiar with this. So the, you know, they're, they're going to name this principle. So that's, again, just a little bit of the dynamic about Jamie being the junior member of this trio in terms of sense making. Um, but yeah, aside from that, what about the rule Omega? Do you think that's a good rule, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to judge. That would be, I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad. Um, that would be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be very anti-Rule Omega. Yeah, that's right. Don't. Don't lay that trap for me, Chris. No, I mean, look, uh, I'm happy for now just to describe it. I'm just absorbing it. I'm taking it all in. I'm letting it percolate and swirl around. But yeah, this is this is the thing. Um, Rule Amiga, it's I'm okay, you're okay. It's not a competition. It's not about saying some ideas are wrong or some ideas are right. Every perspective is valid and has value. And you you need to try harder to find those nuggets of truthiness inside stuff, even if it seems ridiculous on the face of it. Yes, and I have 
Jordan outlining this in kind of more emphatic fashion. So here's, here's a little bit more about Rule Omega. I'm not interested in having conversations that aren't actually trying to break new ground. So, okay, do it, dude. So you're expressing something hard. And in the expression, 98% is noise and 2% is signal. Like the jazz riff. But what happens is that my job is to actually do two things. One, hold all of it. Not just say, fuck it, that, was, that wasn't 100% right, so I'm just going to nuke it. Hold all of it. Then, in myself, discernment. To what degree can I express something back that gets rid of the 50 per, 50% that is noise? So now I've got 6% signal. Express it back. And of course, if he can then do that, and now you, three is even better, a more profound instrument, because you're going to be bringing a different perspective. Perhaps you can take it and actually zoom in on it down to the point where we're actually 50% signal. That's the idea, right? And so one, it's an invitation to say, hey, we're trying to do something that's hard. Let's all try to do something that's hard and be willing to take the risk of not speaking elegantly and on the premise that everyone else is doing their absolute fucking level best to hear that which is trying to speak itself through you and listening to themselves like, oh, there it is, tone, got it. There's something beautiful and clear there. Here's what I heard. And that's Rule Omega. That's Rule Omega. Yeah, so it is meta. It is meta. Sense making, sense making about sense making. How are we going to fix the world? As a society, we have these massive big problems, these massive challenges. They're too big for any one person to understand or to fix by themselves. So we need to cooperate cohesively in order to solve these tricky problems. And they love splitting definitions, and there's a big difference between complex problems and complicated problems. So, I mean, I'm not even, I mean, we probably shouldn't even get into that. But I think they believe that getting the style of conversation just exactly right and creating this new norm of how you talk about things in this elaboration, toss the ball backwards and forwards and sort of mine and refine meaning out of the things that each other is saying, that's going to be key to solve the problems of the modern world. Yeah. And, and so to me, one of the issues here is like, it's incredibly indulgent, right? Yes. Like, you know, for conversations to work, yes, there has to be a degree of good faith and tolerance and you have to let people finish the point that they're making, right? And you have to accept people can mis misstate the point and still have validity or maybe the, the person is wrong, but they actually make a valid point when they're saying something and so on. And, and if you just pull up people constantly on every little mistake they make or where they speak unclearly, it can damage conversations. They're right about that. But their rule is more like take everything as the baseline to be valid and and don't be mean right don't be critical and that's just that's fine for like they they compare the conversation to jazz on various occasions right and when you're trying to play at some jazz session the point is to make music together but the sense makers are claiming to do something else it's the cue is in the name, right? They're, they're talking about giving actual answers. So actually, there are wrong approaches and there are wrong answers. And if you simply say that, well, let's focus on what everything gets right, you might miss that actually people are wrong and their approaches can be harmful. And this is a little bit why, like when Jonathan Pajot or people say, Alex Jones 
has a crazy wisdom or this kind of tendency to present it as a virtue that you can look at the most unhinged partisan polemicist and say, well, they've got some value to what they're saying. And it's like, yeah, but you have to ignore what they're actually doing, what the majority of their output is to focus on it. And actually, it gives the wrong impression because people end up saying, you know, Alex Jones is, is mostly right. And as we've covered multiple times, he is not mostly right. So yeah, I just think there's a fundamental flaw there. There's also the amusing thing that the Omega Principle is the thing which Brett invokes in his Hunter Gallerer's Guide to the 21st Century, and which says that any behavior which sticks around and is costly is likely mm -hmm. an adaptation. So the Omega yeah. Principle and the Omega Rule are both bad heuristics <laughs> to, to <laughs> apply to reasoning. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. We're going to hear lots more examples of them putting real Omega into practice, and we'll see where it leads, like the kinds of mind castles it tends to create. But I, I think a good analogy here in terms of framing your criticism is um, <laughs> another metaphor, but um, the psychological trait, personality trait, openness to experience. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this uh, um, need for variety, aesthetic sensitivity, tolerance of ambiguity, tends to be greater absorption, unconventionality, intellectual curiosity, intuitional type stuff, right? Now, it's perceived by many not unreasonably, as a pretty good thing to be high in openness to experience. But it's a little bit like how like being charitable and being good faith or being civil or whatever, like these are all good things, but you can take any of these things like openness to experience too far. And if you do, then you you basically get lost in this intellectual wilderness or something like there there is no discernment they talk about discernment that there's no critical thinking there is an inability to, to tell the difference between something that's real and something that isn't real something that makes sense and something that doesn't make sense so yeah um i would disagree with them that, about their approach uh, there's another feature which we'll hear in a lot of the clips to come where something mundane is presented as something profound this is one of the things that I want to recommend people bear in mind. Like, for everything that's being said, what is actually being communicated? What is the principle that's being communicated? And did it need <laughs> such dramatic delivery and profound pauses and metaphors? And just an early example is Jordan Hall talking about, you know, why he's able to bestow wisdom. My path here is through a very, very large number of distinct personal failures. Like just running into a wall and going, okay, well, that's wrong. Turning a little bit, running into another wall. That's wrong. Turning a little bit, running into another wall. Like the number of times that I have fucked up is insane. Like I, I came in like thousands, if not tens of thousands. It's crazy. And um, in the process of that, for example, this is like a case study. One of the things I ended up getting a hold of was the notion that you could actually do things where you could imagine what the consequences of, of your actions might be quite a distance down the road. And you could actually get really, really good at that to the point where you could actually sit there and hear somebody describe a plan to you. And you could listen to the plan and go, that won't work. <laughs> right? And be very confident that, in fact, that plan's not a good plan. I mean, an example might be I'm going to walk up to the fireplace and point my hands at it and say, light. I'll say, well, you know, that's not going to work. I've got a good model of how reality works. I've done this sort of thing before. Bad plan. 
Right? So what I'd found though was that <clears throat> as I absorbed more and more life experience and more and more knowledge, I began to be notice that more and more often, more and more people's plans were of that sort. And then I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I took that as an object of inquiry. He goes on. This, this continues. <laughs> but, uh, th- that is an excellent example, Chris, of like Jordan there is referring to something entirely mundane, which is learning from experience, understanding that to light a fire, you need to not just point at it and yell fire. I mean, yes, that is true, right? Every Everybody needs to learn things in their lives. People make mistakes and people do things like plan and imagine future scenarios i mean it's at once so mundane but so abstract in general there's nothing in it but it's treated it's presented as this is this journey he's gone on and he's discovered that you know you need to understand how the world works you need to make plans (laughs) like uh, you could also be under the mistaken impression that that is a signal of humility But if you were to listen carefully, the argument is Jordan has made so many mistakes that he now currently is able to perceive how everyone else is making mistakes and their plans will fail. So he's he's went through the fire and is now capable to point out, you know, where everybody else is going wrong. So that's not really humility (laughs) well yeah that's right so from their point of view everyone else is we're all mired in game a so all of the bad things that are going on dealing with climate change uh, etc is game a Uh, game a game a matt you've invoked that magic word again let's take a while to get clear what game a is and what a possible alternative to game a might be but here's some of the issues with game a thinking that that you and i uh, are mired in Now, of course, we have the whole story of Game A playing out over time. The solution that Game A comes up with is this entire story, this society, mind, paradigms. Think of it as like almost computational actuation that simplifies human relationships and puts them in very simple relationships that have inputs and outputs, formal structures, money, law, anything that can fit in a semantic narrative that actually can be really held by a person in teaching. You've written that in a book and repeated over and over again and simplified. There's a lot to it, but I I mean, we don't have forever. So then we fast forward and say, okay, game A has a whole bunch of things inside its possibility space. So it can deliver on the Ming dynasty and Rome and the Prussians and 21st century US, right? Those are all inside the thing that game A can be, but they're all variations on that theme. We come to where we are now. The problems that we're facing are a different set of problems, right? And the problems we run into now is that game A in and of itself can't ultimately deal with complexity, both complexity in terms of actually being able to take full closed loop responsibility for the, for the natural environment. Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. game A? Game <laughs> A is everything. Gesticulating wildly at all of this. It is literally everything. Like if you can describe it, if it's a human system that can be written down and comprehended by people, if it involves some kind of rules or some kind of structure or some kind of roles, that it's game A. It is It is everything from the Ming Dynasty to... But notice, people might have mistook there that game A is all of those societies, but that was just described as a bunch of things inside the possibility space of game A. Yes. So, so everything up to 21st century society from, you know, the classical 
period of Rome. That's game A. We've been all on the same game, but yep. but something has fundamentally changed with the internet, with the modern era, and we can no longer play this game A that's been keeping us okay for all this time, but it's it's time to discard it. It cannot deal with the global mm. problems of today, Matt. Yep, we need a paradigm shift. And do, do you have a quote that can give us a little description of game B? Game B. Do, do they actually describe it as anything other than not? It's not game A. We cannot emphasize that enough. Game, game B. B, you say. Because it is so effective at power and an underlying premise of win-lose dynamics, I meaning remember it was invented for the purposes of competing with other people in a context of scarcity, as it actually has become extremely powerful, this is the problem of becoming godlike at the level of power, but not at the level of wisdom. Right? So game A runs to the limits of its, of its boundary conditions. It can't solve those three fundamental problems in and of itself. So something new has to be developed. So we say, okay, well, that's game B. Just literally, we're just defining a place. It's a pointer to something over here. So we're like, well, what is that? So, so we've, we, we've defined a space in which game B may enter. Game B is a concept now which has floated into our intellectual vocabulary. We're not quite there, Matt. We've just pointed at what game B is not, right? It, it, what and where it may emerge from. But but let's see. Maybe maybe we can talk a little bit about what game B is. That whole box is different, right? That order of magnitude. And it has characteristics that allow it to actually actually address these three questions, anthrocomplexity, natural complexity, and the problematic of exponential technology that comes from learning. It's okay. What does that look like? What are some characteristics of that? And that's some of the things we've been talking about today. Right? At the center of it, for me at least, as I've gone through the questioning of this over and over and over again and recognized, for example, that you have to change the mind, otherwise you just recapitulate the society, um, is this thing that we've been calling coherent collective intelligence and coherence specifically is at the very center of it. Um, but in many ways, game B we even talked about has a bit of that Taoist sense to it. As you're naming it in the context of game A, quite often you're actually importing game A into it. So you have to actually treat it very, very carefully. It's less about being able to describe it than it is in fact, just being able to do it. It is the kind of thing that you do, not the kind of thing that you talk about. You can talk about how you can become capable of it, but designing it, talking about it, is generally a full fundamental error. Does that make sense what I'm saying there? So, yeah, game A can't really be described in... Sorry, game like, A can be described. Oh, sorry. Did I say game A? You said I meant game, to say game B. Get your games just, right, Matt. Sorry, my <laughs> games, my games. Um, yeah, so it's, it's worth recapping, though. It's worth recapping. So Jordan Hall uh, has fucked up hundreds of thousands of times in his life. Make that clear. Good to reiterate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's discovered that in order to not continue fucking up, you need to actually have a plan and actually understand how the world works, whether it's lighting a fireplace or something else. And mm -hmm. this is putting him in a good position to understand how to solve problems like you know climate change or war or, and so on he's you know he's heard all of the game a solutions to these kinds of things and it's obvious that they're, they're not going to work they don't work so what we need to do is we need to come together in a state of coherence 
which is the process we need to follow in order to solve these problems. And everything that's happened up till now, so everything since the Paleolithic, right? We, as soon as people started to communicate with each other and organize themselves in, in any kind of group, we were playing like a scarcity game, right? We were like trying to survive and get resources and, um, and compete with each other. And that's all game A. And that progressed. You had the Ming Dynasty and the Roman Empire and atomic bombs and, and everything that has happened up till now. But it's bad because that kind of thinking leads to depletion of resources and people are concerned with power and prestige and, and leads to aggressive and competitive relations. So game B is like a paradigm shift in our cultural evolution towards coherent collective intelligence. How's that? My God, Matt. <laughs> you, you, they should invite you for these conversations just to summarize what they've said. Uh, I think that was very good, by the way. It was a nice encapsulation of where we are so far. But I, I'll also note that Jordan Hall invoked the Tao, right? That it's it's a kind of Taoist thing about it shan't be named. You kind of need to go with the flow and we'll get the flow and we'll get the coherence and all that. But just to know, Jordan Hall is the person that invoked that it's a bit like Taoism. So now it's the next clip. And this is Jimmy Wheel picking up what Jordan's talking about. You can talk about how you can become capable of it. But designing it, talking about it, is generally a full fundamental error. Does that make sense what I'm saying there? I mean, I think it just depends on how Taoist we imagine game B to be. Well, that's very odd because it can't actually be Taoist, interestingly enough, but it can actually be, it's more like the Taoist insight that points to the Tao. But I can say it very clearly. If I could articulate it, by definition, it's complicated. It's not complicated. Game B is not complicated. Game B must be intrinsically complex. So I cannot define it in any finite set of statements because any finite set of statements is complicated. So it's not that kind of thing. So if I'm explaining it, if I'm describing it, I have to be doing it in something which is essentially poetic, not a specification. Or as Daniel said, I'm pointing towards the generator functions that give rise to something that is more than the thing that is said. You get all right? You get that, Chris? <laughs> that, well, the, that music wasn't just in your mind for the words of this thing. That was actually the That's the sound of my mind floating away. <laughs> that's, a, that's the noise it makes when it departs from my body. Yeah, that was actually the clip that they chose to introduce, you know, the kind of selling <laughs> for the, the episode. But, like, there was so much there. But I'm a fan of the petty interpersonal elements in these conversations. And I'll just notice that, as I said, Jordan introduced the Taoist metaphor. Jimmy tries to riff on it by saying, you know, well, how Taoist is it? And he's like, well, it's not actually Taoist. <laughs> what a low resolution comment, Jimmy. It's, it's about the thing in the Tao pointing to the Tao, as any good sense maker would know. And, and then they go into the thing that game B cannot be named. And that beautiful phrase, Matt, game B is not complicated. It's intrinsically complex. <laughs> like Jordan Hall loves doing that. <laughs> he, he always likes that. It's wonderful. Game B must be intrinsically complex, so it cannot be defined in any finite set of statements. So yeah. it's 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 a riddle wrapped in a 
Mystery put into a coconut and set adrift on the ocean. You can kind of grok it like a tree falling in the forest. No, only if you don't look it in the eye. It's like a, you know, it's mm. a grumpy cat. <laughs> you want to pet it, you, you got to do it like you're not interested in it. Just flirt you, with GMB. Tell you it gotta, you don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to sort of sidle up to GMB. Don't, yeah. don't try to, if you come at it straight, it'll run away like a startled deer. GMB's not that easy. It likes people that play a bit, you know. Come, come on, Jamie. Come on, Jamie. Keep up. Yeah. Keep up. He's not uh, tracking. But he's not tracking. And also that last bit where he's, you know, what it is like is pointing towards the generator function that gives rise to something that is more than the thing that it is said. <laughs> right. It's just like, okay, so, you know, I've, maybe I've been a bit wordy and obfuscatory. So this extremely wordy and obfuscatory metaphor will will suffice as an explanation so yeah game b Matt. yeah game b i mean the other little thing to notice about the language there is that it is an interesting melange of concepts from different places so the, the referencing taoism that's actually a, a notion of god right that you know th theologians made a big deal about god not being very complex but complicated because god is like like an, an indivisible whole but is yet Anyway, so I was referencing that, but also this tech talk of generator functions yeah. and there's heaps of heaps of tech talk all throughout. So it's pretty fascinating, just the language. It's like uh. it's so buzzwordy and full of neologisms, but it's it's effective in a in a dark kind of way. Oh, there's so many metaphors, Matt. We, I, like, I feel it will be bad if I just put them all together because I've got a folder that's metaphors, right? And they're just metaphors and everything. But the, as you said, references come from like religion and anthropology and, you know, spiritual traditions as well as technology terms and computers and so on. But here's Jordan Hall showing the breadth of his references. What is then, why does it always break down? Mm -hmm. why, do, why every time we try to scale does it break down? One of the reasons is because, as our friend Lao Tzu discovered, and by the way, also our friend Buddha discovered, and our friend Jesus discovered, every time the storytelling monkeys try to turn into a story to tell, they fuck it up. So, let's be mindful of that, and recognize that the storytelling piece of it definitely isn't the answer. Okay, so, Sherlock Holmes style. We've now carved that out of the available portfolio of things that we can do. How do we go about doing anything at all that doesn't involve being a storytelling monkey? Yeah. So we got the religious figures. We got Zen. We've got Sherlock. That was that was primarily references, not not metaphors. But I just appreciate that kind of flow across yeah. religious and fictional characters. And yeah. Well, I think in that period they describe it as. It's like flow, but unconstrained to any one domain. But the recurrent theme there, Chris, the point that they're making endlessly, it takes them a long time to make it, that it's ineffable. The thing that is good, the thing that is coherence, that is game B, that is whatever, cannot be described. It can't be understood analytically, can't be put down. You can maybe sometimes experience it in a transitory kind of way, but you have to have it revealed to you like Zen enlightenment or the matrix or something. Yeah, you're you're right about that, Matt. And uh, I think this next summary about we're still trying to get game B, game A, sense making, and and this might tie a couple of things together for you. There's many different technologies for maintaining that particular style of collective intelligence. 
which of course I could I just call game A, like a whole, yeah. a whole way of solving that problem. Yeah, basically game A and scaling coordination are, the, are pretty synonymous. Scaling coordination beyond the Dunbar number. Huh. Meaning all the other additional bells and whistles of game A, you would, you would assert basically are kind of follow-ons for how do you, how do you control and coordinate resources and humans beyond 100 to 150. Yeah. Yeah. Money, um, formal hierarchy, the notion of formality in general, the idea that there's a role that somebody fills as opposed to humans are just humans. And sometimes like dynamic from formal subordination to dynamic subordination, that shift, um, law, policing, uh, each one of these are just tools in the game, a toolkit that are all endeavoring to solve that problem. Shared in-group identity. Quite a lot in the Game A toolbox. <laughs> it's quite a lot. When they talk about Game A, they focus on hierarchies and formalized things, power relations, that kind of thing. But they do emphasize that Game A is kind of everything. Everything that's going on right now, everything that's involved in how people organize themselves and interact with each other and everything about how society works. It's not good, basically, and we need to shift to game B. And if you want to see what game A is infecting and, and how badly it's messing everything up, just, just listen to this. So I'm noticing now if we switch this domain, I'm thinking about the folks on the other side of the camera. So let's take this and make this practical in the context of sense-making in the world that we live in right now. Um, Almost everything that we're talking about, if you apply it, one of the things that you notice, of course, is that all the stuff that typically goes under the heading of sense-making is worse than useless. And so any newspaper, any news program, pretty much every scientific paper, to be perfectly frank, you know, we've done that analysis and taken a look at how few of them are replicable and how much of an incentive structure there is for actually lying to be able to generate local selective advantage. Um, at least misinterpreting. At least misinterpreting, yeah, or overstating or whatever. He hacking for funding and grabs. It's, yeah, it's a mess. Um, so game A, as a sense-making architecture, broadly speaking, waste of time. <laughs> I love so fucking game A is science. It's police structures. It's it's everything that we've done for thousands of years. And, and because of the replication crisis, Matt, you see those little, somebody should never have taught the sense makers about <laughs> words like P hacking and stuff. They just are like, so obviously throw that all out, right? <laughs> we, we can't trust every scientific paper is basically, even if it's right, it's like only partially correct because they haven't done proper sense making about it. So, oh, it's so arrogant. It's so arrogant. <laughs> it is amazing, isn't it? And it is like a self-sealing mindset because what we're doing right now, they would say, is being uncharitable, deliberately misinterpreting, taking a low resolution understanding of what they're saying. And we're probably doing it to build cachet in our in-group and for competitive sort of purposes, or the same kind of bad motivations that are driving scientists. Or to defend the blue citadel from the barbarians mm. at the gate, right? Where we're mm. keeping out the interlopers by, by smacking down their sense-making. So it is invalid what we're doing on Rule Omega slash 
game B principles. So that's convenient, I think, if things can't really be... It yeah. feels like a slight double standard. <laughs> no, because <laughs> they are certainly being dismissive and critical of vast arenas of knowledge and history. It can't be emphasized enough that game A is everything. It's Rome, it's science, it's the police, it's the Ming dynasty. Literally everything is a waste of time. Yeah, and so Matt, you might, after all of this, been wondering. So we've got the we've got the problem. We understand what's wrong with game A, all its limitations. We understand how metaphysical and transformative game B is. But what's the brass tacks? How do we put game B in real life into practice? What is the advice here? What should we do? At least what I'm saying, what I'm what I'm articulating is that to do this thing to come into coherence, to play game B, there's a lot of work that has to be done in the individual, in yourself. And then the way to learn how to do coherence is always going to be with people with whom you actually have real relationships. And not us, not the three of us. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents, or at least other human bodies with whom you can actually be in real physical proximity meaning for a meaningful amount of time. So that's, that's definitely going to be the fabric out of which this thing gets woven. It takes time, for sure. And it takes um, doing the hard human stuff so you actually have an embodied experience of what it feels like to actually do the hard human stuff as opposed to book learning on that direction. And good instincts and good habits built through long practice. And the notion is to say, oh, let's connect the dots. Yeah. Did that, did that make it clear, Matt? It's about, it's about connections. Think global, act local, right? Yeah, it's about connections. It's about having real authentic relationships with your spouse and children and friends, which is, hey, I don't, that's but, good. Yeah, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. I'm done with that. But is it an alternative to like everything? <laughs> like, like I'm not quite, I, I think I'm, I have to consult my notes, but I don't think they actually really come up with any prescriptive or suggestion alternatives to the current thing, which is very bad, except to say that it's going to be hard and it's going to be like a lived experience thing where you have to practice it. I don't think it gets much more concrete than that, does it? No, and this kind of fetishizing of direct relationships, this is key to the sense-making ecosystem, right? Like, it's part of the reason why Brett Weinstein, a big fan of GMB, can argue that because he puts his ideas past Heller and she gives him the green light, that that's a better peer review than a, a body of relevant experts in a field. And it's more true because she actually cares about him. So she wouldn't want him to get things wrong, right? It's complete mm. misunderstanding or kind of conflation of the personal with the technical critique mm. that you don't yeah. get from your yeah. friends and family. It's like me submitting a paper for peer review and it's going to be evaluated unsympathetically by a complete stranger who doesn't understand the full context of where I'm coming from and, and isn't asking for a clarification. They're just saying, boop, I don't understand this. You haven't made this clear. This doesn't follow from what you've said. You haven't reported such and such. That kind of low resolution, negative energy. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no place for that. Um, the omega gotta... rule, Matt. The omega rule. Apply it. If you want to see some sense making riff on this kind of approach, here's Jimmy Wheel. So that feels like Hero's Journey 101 or Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, right? 
to go? Well, you're saying, hey, the way forward into game B and emergent coherence is to actually come all the way back home to the basics of good old-fashioned humanity. But in order for me to be able to reanimate and fully live into the basics of good old-fashioned humanity, I actually have to have gone on some initiatory transformative journey in order to remember, in fact, that fucking cow town in Kansas is the best place ever, and there's no place like home. Nice. So you just join. I get it. So we're adding those two together, it comes clear. Beautiful. Yeah, that's very nice. It's, very, it's actually odd how simple and uh, like plain things are. And of course, it's, what's interesting is that once you grasp that, once it lands, you begin to see how the, the bigger challenges begin to self-resolve. Make an analogy to the Wizard of Oz and you can solve climate change. <laughs> yeah, you just need to go on a journey. And let's remember, this is a journey, I think, into game A. <laughs> so you can come back to the homestead and the personal relationships that's game B. And then you find out that those big things like climate change and stuff were actually pretty simple all along. I do love the kind of enthusiasm with which they reach for references or metaphors. And there's another one that comes immediately after, which I thought was pretty good. So we had The Wizard of Oz. Now we're going to go into slightly more recent fictional territory. I'm trying to solve the game theoretic problem with complete strangers by telling the truth. Anybody who understands how to do game theory is going to say, oh, you're, you're the one who's actually the dupe. Ah, uh, we found this up. Don't be Ned Stark. Don't be Ned Stark. Unless you're actually in Winterfell with your family. Then be Ned Stark. That's the idea, right? Don't, the key is don't go to King's Landing. Yeah. Full stop. That's the key. Listen, so to your point, though, if you're saying, hey, um, yeah, you know, honor information ecology for the enhanced sense-making of all, minus the folks who'll do the multipolar polar trap grab the ring, capture the flag. But in a, rain, in a realm of infinitely distributable digital information, aren't we always simultaneously playing both of those games at once without even clear understanding of the which and the when? And <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, isn't it? Those metaphors, you, you got the Dorothy, you go away, you realize there's no place like home, you're Ned Stark, stay in Winterfell, don't go down to King's Landing. Or if you do go to King's Landing, keep your wits about you. Don't practice game B down there. Practice it at home with your family. Yeah, you're getting them, right? Is, is, this, is, is this the lesson we're, we're meant to be? Um, You've almost got it. Maybe one more metaphor will help you. Let's see if this one will do it. So discernment is the sort of thing that is somehow not just uncapturable, it's anti-capturable. So to the degree to which somebody actually goes through the process of building their discernment, they are in fact more likely to become an ally than they would otherwise have been for example. And so the Rebel Alliance shouldn't be building or outsourcing or open sourcing plans on building Death Stars. They should be building and open sourcing plans on how to build a Rebel Alliance. So that if the Empire... Well, what about lightsabers? Hold on. It's just, so if the Empire gets a hold of the plans, all that happens is the Empire becomes more Rebel Alliance and less Empire. So not lightsabers. Not lightsabers. <laughs> It's it's so good the way they get into the metaphor, right? Like the lightsaber point is important, the clarify. Like so so should they be outsourcing the plants for lightsaber? No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And not the plans for the Death Star, because then 
the empire will fix the the vulnerability well no then people will all be building dev stars all over the oh place. yeah right what right. you want them to be building is rebel alliances so you just you make the plans for the rebel alliance open source and then people will just make rebel alliances everywhere you get caught up in the metaphors and you can't remember what it is the metaphor was for like here the metaphor is for open sourcing discernment which is anti-capturable the discernment, whatever the hell that is, that's the plans for the, like... I know. It, feel, it, it turns your brain into a pretzel. Yeah, so I could literally just spend all day <laughs> going for different metaphors that they reference in order to explain those concepts. And there's nothing wrong with metaphors, but it's like the importance which they attribute to them and the readiness with which they reach for them which is part of the problem. But Chris, in fairness to them, they're at least being consistent in that they truly believe that the things they're talking about cannot be described except in poetry and allegory and metaphor, right? That's right. So it, it, in that sense, it is consistent. As they said, it's, it's like a poetic understanding. So the fact that you would trade in analogies about the Death Star and Ned Stark and the Arctic Explorers is another one that comes up, or cells in a body and, and so on and so forth. It's the, it's the notion of, you know, James Bond defusing the bomb. The clock is ticking. He has to actually be acting as nonchalant as if he's in the process of, you know, swirling his martini. Because even the least bit of feeling urgency guarantees failure. It's the mountaineering go slow to go fast. Yeah. Right, exactly. So that's another key, right? And this happens all the time as you get it and that you can see it happen. I've seen it happen many times in myself. Like it is that, right? And kind of the more that your metaphor can be densely packed and the more that you can like draw parallels to the current situation, the more that they like it. You know, there was one point when the Wizard of Oz metaphor was brought up when they were basically applauding, like, that's great. You know, go back to mm. Kansas. You're right. That's what it's all about. Yeah, but the thing that gets lost is what is the metaphor for? Like, do you remember? Can you remember, like, what's the metaphor of Dorothy realizing there's no place like home? What is the metaphor in service of? Because often the point of the metaphors get lost. I think the metaphor was for game B, right? That you had to go out there in the game A world and realize that it was all pretty bad. And that way you would come home to game B. That, that was the metaphor. That you can't just appreciate game B. You have to go out and do game A for a while, figure out it's really bad, come back. Metaphors have multiple interpretations, Matt. And if you also detected a kind of theme in the, the things that are being referenced, Game of Thrones, Star Wars, the Borg come out, at another part. I thought this one was particularly good, a, a very rich metaphor to mine, so to speak. And at the same time, we have that dynamic subordination or, you know, not game theory capture. We play well with each other. No one fucking grabs the ring, right? And we all create the, the Council of Elrond. So you just set up hyper-individualism and some kind of oneness or collectivism as a thesis, antithesis, and you're asking about synthesis. It's one way of framing it. And so far in the conversation, for whatever reason, you've been doing a beautiful job of asking questions, but I kind of want to ask back, since I know this is exactly the center of what you're focused on, how do you see that synthesis emerging? 
beats me, man. I mean, I, I feel like, to your point a little bit, like we have to train and we have to practice. You know, you said everyone's going to become Usain Bolt, but like you can't make a soccer team with Usain Bolt. <laughs> There's only one of those sons of bitches and he's faster than everybody else. So we got, we got Lord of the Rings, the Council of Elrond. Then we had Team Bolt and the soccer team. And uh, I also like that little bit of meta commentary by Daniel, right? That like, you've been good at posing questions, Jimmy. Why don't you try and answer <laughs> one of them? So that was like sense-making jazz in its purest form. You know, it's the interest in diving into the metaphor, like setting up a, a dichotomy between collectivism and individualism. And then let's start talking about what the synergy looks like. What would that look like? You lose the thread of what it is they're actually talking about. I think they're talking about how to make game B happen, the strategizing, how to inculcate game B into the society. You know, it is. And I will say that, you know, like I, I jumped around a little bit there. So that was a little bit mean of me to not follow the structure. But but like mm -hmm. I, I we said at the beginning, this is why it's kind of hard to focus on because, you know, you can be listening and they'll just get lost in the metaphor and walk down this little cul-de-sac and you kind of lose the thread of what they're talking about. And the style of talking and we are very familiar with this dynamic because we run a podcast, right? And we have to edit audio files. But the sense-making sphere has this particular thing of trading monologues. Basically, like there's big blocks of somebody giving this extended metaphor and riff. And then it's the next person's turn, right? Or they might ask a clarifying question and let the other person riff. But these guys are really comfortable with extended monologues in a conversation in a way that is frankly, probably not natural in a normal conversation. Where I kind of appreciate them in a way is that they are describing what a lot of these guru types do, you know, like their rule omega thing. They explicitly say how you have to talk about this stuff in poetry and metaphor and so on. Um, it's kind of nice in a way because they're, they're actually being explicit about what people like Jordan Peterson and a lot of others do. They're saying, this is how we talk. This is how we are going to communicate. They're reflecting on their own, what they do, and they're quite accurate in describing what they do. Yeah. And they do have this, uh, like, for example, Matt, this is them reflecting towards the end of the conversation on what they've just done. Uh, but I think the beauty of what's happening though, is that it's so unlikely that anybody's actually going to watch this video because it's so incomprehensible and just hard to follow that it's, it's actually not a problem. <laughs> uh, the, uh, what's interesting, I was just kind of thinking about that in terms of like the meta is to the degree to which this is actually interesting at all, what I would say is that this is genuinely just a conversation. This is, I mean, for those who happen to be watching, this is straight up just exactly what a conversation, as fucked up as that is, <laughs> what we talk about. And this is no different as far as I can tell, and I've had conversations with both of you and some conversations, the three of us together, um, maybe a little bit more formal, but not a lot. For me, the thing out there is that they're stating that this is the way that they talk to each other, which I don't doubt. Jordan Hall there has a perhaps uncharacteristic moment of recognizing that this has been an indulgent conversation that people might have a hard time getting so he's correct, but he's also wrong that nobody will ever listen to it because here we are. <laughs> and now many, many people are listening to it. So, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was a popular thing. You know, if you read the comments under it, 
people who they are clear that it's kind of hard to follow everything that's been said, but they're also clear that something important is going on. And it's mm. nice for them to be invited to the table. The universal theme in the comments is that this is a profound and deep conversation that's going on. And what they're doing is sketching out this architecture of a world that doesn't exist yet. They're trying to put words to the inexpressible. And all of these metaphors and allegories and so on are a way at hinting at this fantastic Age of Aquarius gay B thing that's going to be far, far better than all of this stuff that's gone before. And it's going to happen by coming together. And it's all buzzwordy, you know, coming together in a state of collective coherence, blah, blah, blah. But it's going to happen by doing what they're doing, like their process, this riffing, these metaphors. That's the key, Chris. That's going to solve the problems of the world. Yes, it will. And there are various points in the conversation where they do have this kind of meta commentary on the nature of the conversation, right? They're sense makers. So this is one of their preoccupations is like, how is the conversation flowing and, and what's happening? And there's one point where they flag that they're going to do this. And I, I think you quite enjoyed this. So let's hear that. I'd like to have a proposed a meta and a meta meta move. Okay. The meta move. Wasn't this already? I'm noticing that the conversation has a particular topology to it. And I'm curious why that's the case. So it's meta because I presume that the answer to that curiosity will have something to do with either homos, we are in fact primates, or something about our developmental environment that has caused this topology to spontaneously emerge, which is to say that the conversation is a V. Daniel's talking to you, I'm talking to you, Daniel and I are now talking to each other, and there is no third. Right? Third meaning like something. Right there, yeah. So that's one. That's the meta move. Why? Why, is, why did that topology settle in the way that it settled in? Then the, the meta meta move, hey, unfortunately, oh, the meta meta move is, of course, in the act of actually contemplating the meta, we can, in fact, endeavor to be doing it rather than talking about it. And we can notice how the doing it informs the talking about it in a fashion that resolves the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's so... That is all to say, me and Jamie have been talking to each other quite a lot. And Daniel, you haven't said much. And why do you think that is? Is it the topology? Yeah. Is it because we're homos? We're all homos here. You're a homo man. I'm a homo. We're homo sapiens. That's just the normal way to say that. Or is it something more mystical? And what about this third, the invoked third? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the third is this entity that arises out of the conversation or something. An egregore, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you just cannot overstate how indulgent the conversation is and how much it, they complicate everything. And I'll just describe yet another example. They get right into these like things they create. Like they'll just define like a, a thing between collectivism versus individualism. Then they'll start talking about how breaking down an individual sense of self is going to help enhance collective coherence, which is a good thing. But then they sort of worry that that's going to diminish individual sovereignty, which is a good thing. And it's very important that nobody is subordinate. So it's got to be a higher synthesis. And then they talk about heterogeneous coherence. And again, reference a jazz band where people are not are cohering in harmony, but they're not conforming 
but rather expressing their individuality within a harmonious whole. And it goes on. It's this amazing, profuse, intellectual, generative thing where they set up words and they set up ideas and then they relate them to each other and then they define problems from the words they've just created and then define this mind palace and they sort of just go for a little walk in it and build the like a dream they build the scaffolding as they go it is a sight to behold it is wild oh matt there's there's good examples of this but i want to like so i i have to take probably one of the paradigmatic examples of what you're just describing but before that i just want to tie that like as i said with this kind of lofty talk it's often tied to like what is just a very fundamentally mundane thing like you haven't said very much daniel right and you can see that that is what it's tied to because of stuff like this Yes, what I'm noticing is that I'm noticing a feeling of there not being something coming from Daniel that actually creates the right kind of symmetry in the conversation. So I'm interested in getting your perspective in a fashion that is not responsive, but is in fact direct, like coming from the inside out. <laughs> the thing that I was um, feeling to share, I just didn't hear a spot where it was in it was relevant <sighs> daniel schmeckelberger yeah, can take a pause he sure can take a pause but back to good old jordan hall i mean you saw an example there of can you imagine a more pretentious and needlessly complicated way to refer to something pretty mundane which is hey you haven't said much you haven't said much what do you think give us your opinion <laughs> It's impressive. Matt, you know, the point you made about the intricate mind palaces being conjured up and the the metaphors, and Jordan in particular is like sort of precious with how people interact with his metaphors. And there's one where he's talking about a metaphorical cube. And and Jamie is usually the person that gets kind of smacked down for interacting badly with the metaphors or in a way that they're not supposed to. So here is a clip which I know that you're particularly fond of. Well, if we do the anthropology and we take a look back and say, okay, well, how long did it take to pull that shit together? Um, finding, remember I had that spot in possibility space. So imagine a cube and in that cube, let's make the cube one million by one million by one million. So it's a big cube, okay? And all, all over there are different kinds of uh, phenotypes. Hominids happen to be a sphere about a thousand by a thousand by a thousand in that cube. Mollusks are down here. Right? Inside the sphere of hominid, there's an even smaller sphere, which is Homo sapiens, which is maybe five by five by five in terms of the possibility space. And of course, you're talking sentient biomass. What's your what's your million cube? My cube is the uh, well. It's actually an n-dimensional space, but I'm reducing it to three to make it work. So don't put indexes on. Otherwise, it's don't talk, don't talk down. To the metaphor exam doesn't exam doesn't 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 hold. This <laughs> poor Jamie. Don't talk down to me. <laughs> Jamie <laughs> didn't understand that it was an n-dimensional cube. This is this metaphorical cube was at an infinite number of dimensions. Chris, obviously, how could he have not got that? There was a. A rare moment of direct sense maker anger yeah. present there, but 
that cube and that Jimmy made the mistake of asking about how many sides it has. He also made the mistake of asking, well, hang on, what is what is the cube? Like it's a possibility space, but of what exactly? You know, like you don't do that, right? It's it's everything. It's 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 a vibe. It's a thing. It's a metaphor. It's poetry. Don't try to unweave the rainbow, Jamie. No, he got what was coming to him, Chris. Yeah. So to take an example of where this all ends up, you know, the riffing upon riffing upon riffing that you're discussing, let me play a clip or two from towards the end of the discussion just to see where this kind of thing eventually ends up. It has to be alive and real and rediscovered for everyone. Right. And that's a different process than mimetic transmission. Exactly. Mimetic transmission. Well, what about a catalytic mimetic? Because that has to be. Probably I know it's a lot of good syllables. Doesn't it sound like? <laughs> um, no, truly. I mean, what? What? To your point about you're you're giving you're you're disclosing the protocols for self-disclosure. That that could arguably be a catalytic mimetic. principles more than protocols. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go more. I, I'm, I'm I'm interested. I'd like. Or to even a mythopoetic catalytic mimetic. So, what is the story of how we begin to remember? Mm. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack a, there a mythic the, poetic mythic poetic mimetic catalog mimetic i think you could start untangling that by the little hint they gave which is how to go back when they're talking about coherence which is this really great thing it's unclear what that is but it is clear that that is something that human beings had when we lived in smaller groups, in a hunter-gatherer society, in their minds, we would sort of function together as this coherent, synergetic, poetic, mimetic, whatever. Something cool, so we need to go back to that. But how did we get here? We need to go back a few steps, Chris. We do. So this concept of coherence is quite key to this whole discussion. You'd be forgiven for like zoning out and thinking that's all the discussion is about because it takes up about an hour of the conversation. But um, as you would imagine, it's a complicated topic. And so let's start with Jordan Hall defining what coherence is about. And there's a lot of different ways of talking about it, but we might say that it is... (sighs) Actually, it's interesting. It seems like you actually have to talk about it in many different ways because it is the kind of thing that cannot be conveyed effectively in language. You know, it's the matrix. Unfortunately, no one can be told what coherence is. But we can actually tell a lot of different stories. It's uh, become the blind man with the elephant. And after a little while, we might be able to, in ourselves, grasp perhaps what is being pointed at. So one way of describing it is it is a... It's a form of collective intelligence that has as a characteristic... a high degree of capacity in the space of novelty and a intrinsic anti-fragility in both human anthropo complexity and nature complexity. Another way of saying that is if you work backwards in taking a look at all the different challenges and problems that we are currently facing, we meaning humanity, 
is the answer to the set that contains those problems. Well, that was clear. Mm. Care to paraphrase that, Chris? Are you able to... There does seem to be uh, something of a reliance on this concept that things cannot be talked about directly. You know, we've already mentioned this, but it's notable that it's almost every concept that they want to discuss cannot be discussed directly. It has to be only hinted at. And, and again, like game B and game A, coherence in some sense it's the magic key that's going to allow us to solve all of the problems. But of course, reducing it to that would be mistaking the path for the destination or you know whichever way you want to go. So it's the kind of collective intelligence that has a characteristic of anti-fragility that will allow us to solve all the problems that game a type thinking cannot solve yeah it's good for what else yeah it's difficult because can't really be talked about it's just a good thing isn't it it's a it's a thing that is good that that solves problems that is somehow connected to ancient humans you mentioned ancient humans that's jimmy's area of expertise so let let's him riff a little bit on this topic of collective intelligence and I don't know where this comes from, but I think it might be like Jungian analysis, perhaps, but the notion of the third. They talk about in like dyadic relationships, and sometimes they'll even do couples therapy where it's almost like, you know, a plate for Elijah or, you know, like a seat for Elvis. It's like there's the third, and the third is the intelligence of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And is the third, you know, a working place? The idea that there is between and among us, but not specific to any of us an additional intelligence that can emerge and that is that that is that the differentiator between what you were describing as coherence and simply maybe collective intelligence or problem solving here or coordination so sorry just to just to be clear my i i may have been reductive in reducing it to collective intelligence it's this very specific type of collective intelligence um, yeah. is coherence it's the third it's the third. Well, I thought that actually helped. He makes it a little bit more explicit that what they believe is that when coherence is happening, then something emerges from a group of people that is greater than the sum of the parts. And this this powerful thing is is a form of creativity and intelligence on its own. And that's the key thing that is needed to solve these tricky problems that humanity is confronted with. Yeah, but, you know, this, the mystical third that emerges, I'm just getting echoes of Jordan Hall's fetishization of the conversation uh, as, as like, key thing he's concerned with creating in conversations, right? Part of that is me, part of that is him, part of that is things beyond both of us, right? It's the whole complex, the whole uh, warm data milieu. Um, I may be able to come into something like an integrous relationship with aspects of Brandon, right? Aspects of me can come into integrous relationship with aspects of him. And for the moment, it forms a new being, which is those aspects coming into relationship and exchanging perspectives and possibilities and tensions, and then perhaps coming back into relationship with the complex relationality that is me. The conversation partner's particular ideology almost is incidental to the experience of having a conversation and the mystical entwining this creates of intelligence and spirits 
I think it's important to remember that this is later used to sort of say that they're not creating a third because Daniel isn't contributing enough to the conversation. So the third is at once this mystical egregore type daemon creature that emerges from conversations. And it cannot be conjured if somebody isn't speaking enough in a three-person conversation. It reminds me also of how with these kinds of philosophies, the process is the content. I encountered this myself in some of the wackier psychology training I took and I hated it at the time. But there is this love of making the conversation or making the way the group functions or whatever, putting like a mirror up against the, the process of that and making some sort of exploration of that, the actual work. So it creates this infinite loop. And it's very helpful also, I think, for the kind of social bonds that these, well, we shouldn't call them cults, should we? Um, these groups, these organizations tend to have in terms of recruiting new members and getting people involved. I see that there's sense-making therapy that you can do to learn better coherence. And just like with organizations like the Scientologists, this kind of, well, we shouldn't say indoctrination, um, inculcation, the sessions, whether you call it therapy or sort of spiritual training, flexing those game B muscles, it involves a lot of this back and forth. So, so that stuff that you mentioned, that's the kind of thing you see in those really intense group sessions. And people emerge from those often with a feeling... Euphoria. Uh, yeah, euphoria, exactly. Like this kind of thing, if you stare intensely at someone for like an hour, people break down and cry during those sessions and stuff because there is a power. We are social primates, so... Doing intense social activities or creating conflict and that kind of thing, you know, it can it can have an impact, but in a lot of it, it's short-lived. And when you keep that in mind, the fact that the content is is kind of non-existent, it's so abstract and intangible that you can't really get a grip on it. That's actually important, isn't it? Because that creates the sense of pressure or tension that gets that social bonding happening. Yeah. So there's a nice little tangent that comes from this. So one thing about coherence is, you know, this kind of thing that there's an essence of purity to humanity that is lost in civilization, but it can be recaptured. Here's Jordan riffing on this concept a little bit. I mean, the real answer is that these lineage traditions indicate to us that the human instrument has a particular ambient capacity to achieve this thing, coherence. Okay, our job is to get really, really good at that, to take that particular ambient capacity and hone it to a level that is the equivalent of a contemporary marathon runner or a contemporary sprinter honing the instrument of running in a way that a Stone Age human can't. Become the Usain Bolt of coherence is the answer to the question. It's there. It's clearly possible. You only have to become the Usain Bolt, though. I mean, remember once the five-minute mile, was it the five-minute mile or the three-minute mile? Four-minute four mile. Hmm. Once the four-minute mile was broken, which was considered to be impossible, now you've got high school students who can do it. And so it's one of those things where once you actually get to a particular node, there's a, there's a, a location in the possibility space of Homo sapiens sapiens that can actually achieve that particular point. Get there, and then build the, the techne of that and bring other people into that place. 
and use that to discover how to actually scale it. So it's kind of surpassing our natural limitations. There's a inherent inclination towards coherence, but you know, it was never that good, but now we're in the position to do coherence on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. We can, we're in a good position to open the third eye. Right. So again, I mean, like you see this in, in so many belief systems, but I'm reminded of Scientology, which also has this, this notion of cultivating mental powers and also optimizing your emotional tone or something and getting yourself in these different theater levels and so on. And, and there are people who are, you know, repressive people, people, people like you and me, Chris, that refuse to get on board. And, you know, if one of those people turns up in one of your group sessions, you have the tools with which to correct them, shall we say, and help them get on board with the process. Sounds very sinister, Mark. <laughs> so one of the things is, you know, and this connects to the whole game A, game B thing, is that we're facing unprecedented threats to our civilization in our current stage. And coherence is as a result, hugely important. And Daniel Schmacknover is particularly good at positing the techno dystopias that are lurking and need to be addressed. So when you talk about how would we have a kind of coherence of collective sense-making and collective choice-making at scale, well, we've never had it at scale, right? As you're mentioning, there was a certain level that some tribes were able to develop. It was part of how tribal life happened. And we know that below Dunbar number and above Dunbar number, there's really fundamental differences. And Dunbar number is not a number, it's a range based on the level of coherence of the type of people. More coherence, better communication protocols, slightly bigger number. But one way of thinking about the Dunbar number is a level at which the communication protocols that m mediate the coherence breakdown, which is why you're asking a scale question. Okay, so does everyone know what the Dunbar number is? I know, I was taught by Robin Dunbar at Oxford, so oh, I'm very no. familiar <laughs> with his number. Look at you, Chris, look at you. Um, yeah, pers personal intuition in the Dunbar number. <laughs> well, well this, I was setting that up as for the benefit of our audience. So, so you, you can tell us, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so actually it's based on kind of regression analysis of the relative size of, I think, prefrontal cortexes or neocortexes. So anyway, some part of the primate brains and their group size. And when you plot humans on the graph from all other primates, you arrive at somewhere around 150 with error bars stretching upwards and downwards of around 100. And various people have taken to imply that our natural group size, like the social networks that we can track, is around 150. And beyond that, you need technologies in order to keep track of things. And actually, our close friends are much smaller than that, right? It's like 150 is a yeah, like, uh, network of relationships. Yeah. But, you know, as he said, as Daniel correctly said, it is more of a range. And I think one of the criticisms which I think is valid about the Dunbar number is there's a little bit of numerology that goes on where people hunt for figures around 150 throughout human history and use that as proof of, well, look at that, legions had 200 deep and yeah. this like subgroup of a tribal affiliation was 100 and, and so on and so forth. But yeah, but yeah. It, it, overall, I think it's a, you know, it's a reasonable concept.
Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. How big your prefrontal cortex is is going to determine how many individuals you can track, basically. So it kind of makes sense. But uh, what also makes sense is that they're hearkening back to to those sorts of group sizes in which coherence can uh, occur in the wild, shall we say, pertains to their recipe or their advice, which there was very little of in this uh, in terms of how to achieve game B. But one of the things they emphasize is that we should be looking to our families, looking to the people immediately around us and cultivating these very good, coherent relationships with our natural circle of friends and family. Yeah, they are pointing out that we need to take the wisdom of those interpersonal connections, the kind of tribal psychologies and the genuine connections that they instill, and we need to somehow ramp them up to a global level, which has never been done. And I... I do want to take a little side detour here, Matt, because Jordan Hall <laughs> starts to talk about one of the ways that he thinks you can improve coherence. It's to do with developmental issues. That's actually a very tricky question because to think about it involves invoking the mind that is not to be to get rid of itself. So the answer is first, Slow way the fuck down. Think developmental. Right? We're going to actually have to go all the way down to conception in the developmental pathway and only do that which is in fact actually within the coherence that we have in fact actually have achieved. This is why I said you actually have to go to that center in the build out. So let's say you want to say, okay, we've achieved coherence. Now let's build a, I don't know, an organization. That's like saying, I'm a three-month-old, I'm going to go drive a race car. Nope, sorry. What can you do? Maybe you can kind of have a conversation that isn't going into game A. Maybe. Sadly. But development has a really cool thing. You can get better at it. So the first is to actually really recognize the absolute irreducible necessity of comprehensively rebooting mind all the way down when you say all the way down down what down to childhood and infancy like early childhood development I actually or? go with conception <laughs> Re reboot the mind the conception free birth free birth <laughs> levels Matt to get coherence functioning properly that's a bold <laughs> statement yeah, he was oddly specific about conception there and seemed to be talking about like literally human development, like you have to intervene with someone at conception, I don't know, play the music or something in the womb, game B music in the womb to turn them into someone who can do this. But then it seems like I thought it was a metaphor for a while that, you know, we have to walk, not run because you know, it's really, really hard to have these coherent things. So the best we can do at the moment, we can't build an organization. The most we can do is have conversations and practice at having really good conversations. But that's very different from interfering with babies before they're born, isn't it? Like, no, see, Matt, this is an example of the metaphor, I think, getting slightly mixed in <laughs> with the, <laughs> the actual discussion. And and just to highlight, it it continues. So maybe maybe this can add some clarity. And so when we say all the way down, it's like to the level of 
do I identify as a separate self in my own experience that, can get, that is in game theoretic relationship to you and identify you as other? Do I experience that? Or do I experience some kind of deeper connectivity in which synergy is the only thing that makes sense? Okay, so now we're into an interesting neck of the woods. Right? But by the way, just practically speaking though, somewhere around 11, 10, 11, <laughs> is a good place at the level of mind. From like concrete operational yeah. on up. Uh, noting that you have to also deal with all the stuff that's going on in the body in that pre-period. So if you haven't resolved childhood trauma or anything that's going on in terms of even simple things like bilateral integration due to not the right kind of developmental environment, you're going to have challenges. So not conception, but slightly different. Now we're at ages 10 or 11 of development. That's where you want. That's the key swap. Presumably yeah. you have to deal with childhood trauma and stuff like that, you know, integrated it, but it's, uh, it's 10 or 11. And as well as that, before that, Schmachtenberger was clearly talking about it being a, a kind of a metaphor for, you know, abandoning yourself and only being aware of the synergy that exists between you and others. But they're clearly talking across purposes because <laughs> Jamie's really talking about kids. <laughs> Jamie or Jordan? Jordan, sorry. Jordan, Jordan. is talking about kids. Um, oh, it, well, Matt, you know, come on. Like, maybe you're just getting lost in the metaphor. I've, I've got, got one last tip. This will clear it all up. This will clear it all up. And then, of course, when you get to that childhood adolescence phase, that's where a lot of the paradigmatic stuff starts to begin to layer in. And, of course, everything that you learn from 17, 18 on, you should go ahead and shelve most of that. Shelve it in what way? Uh, like, don't, allow it, like, don't allow it to make sense of reality. From the, that's the indoctrination into game A formatting? Information, semantic, yes, it's, it's the code. All the code that you've been running that, that partitions reality into prefabricated true and good. Bits and bits. Yes. When okay. you said we're getting somewhere interesting, I wanted to know where you wanted to go. Yeah, it was, well, it was specifically what you were describing as far as, you know, the apocryphal indigenous traditions, right? So, so Matt, game A, let me get this clear for you, all right? You were obviously getting confused. Is it a metaphor? <laughs> is it, you know, about actual developmental pathways? So you need to reboot your mind to conception, right? That's, that's taking you to game B. That's the radical thing that I'm proposing. But, of course, you know, conception... It's a wide definition of conception up to the age of 10 or 11 that <laughs> some people extend it that far. And that's the, the kind of hotspot, you know, when you've dealt with childhood trauma and you're starting to process. 17 or 18, wait a minute, that's when GMA programming coding has come in. You've started dichotomizing the world, good and bad. Got to throw that all out. Anything you learned at university, anything as a young adult, yeah. get rid of that shit. Conception up to ages 10 or 11. Clear? Mm. Yep. Be like a child absorbing the wonder of the universe. Well, you know, I get the vibe, Chris. Logically, not so much, but I've definitely gotten the vibe and it's, you know, shades of Freudianism, shades of, I'm sorry, guys, but Scientology with the kind of unlearning childhood trauma and unlearning all of the terrible polluted stuff that the evil modern world is feeding into us and winding things right back. Yes. So we had Jordan Hall there tying coherence to developmental pathways. And 
Daniel Schmachtenberger wants to take it in a slightly different direction. There's another metaphor that perhaps can better help us to understand what we need to do to achieve coherence or what coherence is actually about. So let's see this part of the elephant. Maybe this part of the elephant will help. They're actually, the optical cortex is putting the information together in a way where if there's actually an error in this one, it's corrected by what this one's doing. So they error correct each other. And then because I can compute the hypotenuse of the triangle, I actually get depth perception and periphery. So the two eyes together give things that neither of them did separately, plus error correction. So I want them to have some shared reality, and I want them to find their shared reality, but I also want them to have difference, and then I want them to relate in a deep way. And then I wouldn't want my ears to be more eyes, right? Like there's a deeper kind of parallax between ears and eyes where eyes are giving me location of things and ears are giving me a different kind of location of things. So the ears with each other give me echolocation, and the ears and the eyes together give me a different kind of sense-making in three space. So we are Mr. Potato Head. So, yeah, I liked Jerry's summary coming in at the end. But, you know, this is another thing, right? Because this is taking the analogy of the senses, the body, and the inputs of the body. And any individual sense in itself is not giving you a true picture. So you need to integrate these complementary, sometimes contradictory senses to create like an actual model of the world. It's another quite poetic description and uh, Mr. Potato Head (laughs) just helped that along. I mean, these kinds of science-y references play an important role in what they're doing, but ultimately it's fulfilling the same role as the analogy of different people feeling different parts of the elephant. Each person is, is feeling something different, but they're getting, you know, a legitimate sense of the whole. And if you can get all those people to talk to each other, and uh, then you'll actually be able to see the whole elephant. It's not really doing anything more than that. The elephant metaphor did it at the start. And like, this is part of the thing that I think we, we cannot emphasize enough. How many times have you heard in this episode, there are different ways of looking at things. People bring different perspectives. And when you put them together, it's beneficial. Right there. That's done in like (laughs) under 20 seconds, right? And just to emphasize how much mileage you can get out of that concept. So remember, you know, we've switched from developmental. Now we're doing the body metaphor. Here's a little bit more of a riffing on the senses and how they come together and linking in that mystical third. So if you think about like every... Imagine if the ears and eyes were just fighting over which was right and the other one was one was comprehensively right and a complete description of reality and the other was comprehensively wrong. That would be ridiculous. We would dissolve into gibberish, right? There is a place where they all have accurate information about reality and it's all partial. This speaks to then that notion of like the third that you mentioned. So in the context, in the relationship between the eyes and the ears, there's a third. We know that third. That's our experience. Our umbel, yeah. Right. So then the question is, okay, you be eyes, I'll be ears. Where's our third? What's neat about that is that then you get some very interesting things where on the one hand, you have, both of us actually, have a clear awareness in ourselves that we are here to, with fidelity, report what we perceive of reality. We are deeply cognizant of the fact that that is not reality. Mm-hmm. 
we are deeply cognizant of the fact that the other is here to report reality and that somehow there is something that can happen that gives a deeper grasp of reality. So you get that. That's the applying the metaphor of the elephant, all the eyes and the ears, if you prefer, to their other metaphor, which was of group communication, where there's like a, a third thing, like the conversation, which kind of emerges out of the, the different contributing parts. So it, wouldn't um, Jordan be the mouth? <laughs> I would put him as the mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Daniel would be the brain and, and Jimmy the hands. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I'm not saying that to disparage Jimmy. The hands are a very important element of sensory perception. That's how you touch things. So there you yeah. go, Matt. My own I mean, sense making. The most charitable way to interpret this is that if you get a couple of people together and if two of them have a different set of skills, different set of knowledge, who knows? It could be a psychologist and an anthropologist, say, for instance. Mm -hmm. And we get our minds together, then by talking about stuff and throwing ideas backwards and forwards, we might come up with something that each of us alone wouldn't have come up with separately. It's kind of like... If you imagine Dragon Ball Z, Matt, there were characters in Dragon Ball Z and they could perform this technique called fusion where individually they have their own strengths, but they were able to perform this dance and it was kind of ritualized. And if they did it wrong, they produced a flawed character, a kind of mistaken, misshapen character that wasn't good at fighting. But if they did it just right, and they touched their fingers yeah. together, they could become something grander than the individuals. And they but, were able to defeat the demons lurking in game sphere. So it's kind of like Dragon Ball Z. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting you should say that, Chris. But, I mean, the old way of thinking about it, the way most people think of that is that people are these discrete intelligences with, with a boundary, just mm -hmm. traversing through the world, like the medium, but separated from it and each other. But what if we thought about ourselves more as waves, rippling through the world. And then when we interact with each other, then we can cohere and together make a waveform that is entirely different from each of us together. And we can actually merge and blend and there are no boundaries between ourselves. Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger's dragon ball. If you Schrodinger. will. Schrodinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so look, you know. Yeah, it's, no. it's important, Matt. These are big ideas. But one more thing, Matt, before we get off the body analogy. It, they're not finished. You know, you might have thought, well, you guys really just played the clips where they're talking. That's a bit mean. Make it seem like they just go on and on and on and on. They weren't finished. So let me just play one more clip. So how all the sensing comes together inside of me is a coherence phenomenon. That's the binding problem in neuroscience, right? and in the philosophy of mind, and then the actuator, why am I not, how do all those parts work together so well as a coherence phenomenon? So if we think about that every human on their own at the next level up is sensing, making sense, and actuating, but then when we come together, like, I want you sensing stuff differently than I am, and I trust that there is information in that that I actually really want to to have access to myself and I want the collective to have and I want you actuating differently than I am but I really want to come into coherence mm -hmm. so in almost like, I mean I wasn't kind of like that, that the joke about Mr. Potato Head is actually kind of like who is the third right <laughs> if we personify and it sounds like 
So we're all different organs, bringing different perspectives. When we come together, we get dimensionality, right? We get whether it's echolocation or binocular vision, we get more out of aggregating and integrating our realities. Oh, Mr. Potato is the third. Mr. Potato Head is the third. <laughs> Chris, Chris, no, that's mean. Well, you know, this has been a bombshell. This has been an amazing idea. What they're saying is that if people talk to each other and share their different mm-hmm. knowledge and experiences, then they might actually accomplish more than if they didn't. That's a turn up for the books. Who would? What have- the fuck? <laughs> what are you talking about, I'm Matt? Not, I'm not kidding, Chris. I'm not kidding. This could happen if we but only tried it. <laughs> it is within our grasp. Uh, yeah. So this, by the way, then leads to that interdimensional cube talk, which is another metaphor. I think the interdimensional cube metaphor is making the really difficult to explain in natural language point that of all the things that could possibly happen, game B is just one of them. Oh, right. So is that what it's about? I think so. I think so. Game B is like just one of the things that homo sapiens can do. Homo sapiens, like the chances of us being here, Chris, in case you don't know, because of evolution and everything, are standingly Mm. small, right? We're just one way of arranging chemicals and things together. And the chances of all of us humans getting together and actually making game B really you know infinitesimal yeah that's right so it's a it's a tiny little spot in that possibility space that's that's the point i see well we're not done with coherence yet we're not done it kind of weaves a lot of these conversations together but i'm gonna jump forward to later in the conversation when there's a little bit more meat on the bone about the kind of details what this might look like so here's a little bit more about coherence, and, and it has this phrase that Jordan Hall uses that I, I love. See if you can hear it. Hey, let's just imagine that we have, with a little bit of thinking, let's say we could woodshed and you could fund, you know, whatever, 24 rad MacArthur level super smart folks to come together and come up with protocols for group coherence that work more often than not. Do we open source that or are we more concerned that it can also build the Borg? Well, if I double click on the content of that, the answer is that we open source that, but that's because there's no such thing. (laughs) Underneath it, there's no such thing which has protocols for group coherence. There's more along the lines of, remember, it's we're trying to cultivate insight, not teach. Mm-hmm. So, did you get the freeze map? Which one do you think I liked? The one with the Borg? Well, the Borg, yeah, the Borg, okay. You know, that's a mundane metaphor in the bevy that they provide, but double click on that, Matt. I'm going to oh, double yeah. click on that concept. If you want to scale this bad boy, Chris, we're going to have to double click. So, what, what I like is that this, this thing that exists in their heads, this um, recipe, a protocol for coherence, is so earth-shatteringly powerful they have to think about the dangers involved in making it publicly available because something this powerful could easily be used as a weapon to oppress people rather than liberate them i mean i'm have have to say i'm reminded of eric weinstein and his reluctance to share his physics theories because it could be used by evil chris 
Yeah, well, and there is that, as you know, and we, we get the tie back here to the open source discussion about the plans for the Dev Star, right? And that's going to emerge from this conversation. But the other point is that in a kind of introspective self cultivation Buddhist enlightenment kind of idea, it's that you can't teach people about coherence. You have to let people uncover their inner coherence which they had all along themselves. And there's, there's a clip that, that highlights this nicely from Jordan Hall. So it's, there's a way to generate a, in individual humans, the, in, the embodied insight to be able to, in themselves, build a capacity to come into coherence. Th- then does actually come into coherence. So if you were to be able to, so again, discernment is, is the canonical point. Open source discernment, great. Open source practices and techniques that work in the directionality of improving discernment at the individual level. Yeah, yeah. Chris, Chris. Yeah. Give a man sense-making and he'll sense-make for a day. But teach a man to sense-make and he will be feeding himself with sense his entire life. Would you agree with that? That's that's right. You've nailed it. Well, you know, actually, Matt, I think it's more point someone in the directionality of improving the discernment towards sense-making, and they may sense-make for their life. Mm, <laughs> yes, and it must be explained that discernment is another one of these special words that was introduced prior, which wasn't really defined, but it kind of means what it says in normal language yeah it's very important it's a very important part of the process of coherence yes there are those times when they take a word and say it's not about criticism it's about being critical <laughs> or it's not about discerning it's about discernment right yeah yeah and it's never it's never really clear what it means but it has been spoken about for a bit and that kind of suffices and then that word then serves as a cornerstone for more sense making to be built on top of that word and we just heard an example of that yeah and so we're getting to the end as far as coherence can take us it's going to lead us into other realms but i i want to top it off with it's in jimmy wheels highlight folder for me what I describe the clip as is Jimmy Wheel spinning out on coherence. So, okay. so let's see if that's an accurate title for this. If I notice what I'm tracking, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That's the foundational level, the springboard from which you leap. Um, and obviously, the higher that is, the less hops you got to have, right, to get to the level of coherence. Um, and between, you know, smart tech, um, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, lineage practices, like there's enough out there these days that you can for sure create at least, you know, like the vomit comment, you can create moments where everybody is weightless. You can create a, a transient group coherence that, and there's, it's a bell curve distribution from what, what I can tell, 10% of the people lose their shit don't know what to do with that space or, you know, and maybe it's like 10, it could be more, but like to say tails, you got, you got the people who can't hang and lose their shit. And then you got the people, it doesn't budge at all. And those are the psychopaths and they should not have been exposed to this. 
And then there's the bell curve in the middle who are like, oh, wow. You know, the Omega principle, like, oh, wow, I'm an organism. I'm an ear. I'm an eye. Holy shit. We're seeing in parallax. This is joyful, wondrous, amazing, and transformative. And so what do we do with that? <laughs> Which are we, Matt? Are we the psychopaths that should never have been told that we are in the ear and an eye? <laughs> I, sus I suspect so. I suspect so. I think psychoactives play an important role here. I mean, that's the subtext. And they, they, do, they do sell nootropics, don't they? They do sell mind-enhancing pills. They claim to give you greater foresight, intelligence. Isn't it nootropics? Joe Rogan was a purveyor of them. Mm. Well, actually, so there's two things. One, I suspect that actually taking bona fide psychedelics, ayahuasca or whatever, I suspect that does play a role in these transient experiences of coherence. But uh, as well as that, all um, perhaps all three of them, I'm not sure, but uh, certainly Schmachtenberger do promote a supplement called Qualia for the Neurohacker mm -hmm. Collective. Qualia, and I just have to say, Chris, I cannot think of a more pretentious name for a brain-enhancing pill than qualia. Now, that's, that's, that's a good one. But yes, as you were saying, some people resist. We have, to, look, we have the capacity to create these transient, coherent experiences and just get a taste, a teeny tiny taste of what a wondrous world it could be. The age of Aquarius when Game B finally takes over. But it's, it's not going to work for everyone. It's not going to work for you, clearly. You'd be the psychopath. I'd probably be in the middle range. You know? I'd no, go yeah, so... There, this gets us into the techno shaman territory, but there's a building block that we left behind that comes a little bit earlier, and it's on the topic of flow, Matt. Flow. So let's hear a little bit about flow, because this is an essential building part before we get to the full techno shaman utopia. Another way of describing it is it's something like flow, since we have that as a nice concrete frame and we can evoke that. Um, in an unconstrained way, i.e. we oftentimes associate with flow, with flow in a domain. A rock climber is in flow when climbing rocks. A uh, jazz band is in flow when playing jazz. Coherence is flow. Absent context? Absent a particular or application. Okay. So flow, Matt, you're familiar with that in the kind of psychological definition of flow? Well, well it's a pop psychology thing, isn't it? It's definitely, um, yeah, it's in popular culture. The flow state, yeah, focusing, etc. I think flow is relatively well empirically validated as a concept, isn't it? Like the people becoming deeply absorbed in oh, tasks. Yeah, I have no I have no problem with it. It's just nothing very mystical. Like you can get flow from playing one of those app games where you're playing Tetris or something. So this is a little bit like, you know, when uh Mickey and like pointed out that the mindfulness measures find that that binge drinkers were scoring more highly than meditators because of <laughs> some of the things that the manager captured. So yes, I do take that. And I, I think that people do focus on flow for more productive things, right? Like exercising or playing chess rather than completing 
what's that called fruit ninja what's that what's a popular one with the fruit making them explode or whatever yeah yeah what's that called candy crush candy crush candy, candy crush yeah candy crush but look i think as a productive thing it absolutely exists like kids that suffer from adhd get given drugs essentially which which help them focus and get into that state you can call it flow if you want just saying it kind of occupies a bigger space in the popular mind than it does in psychology so there's a little bit where jordan hall riffs on people having different vocabulary sets and flow being an emergence property coming from the synergy of a conversation that's what they're talking about with flow but i just liked the way that daniel <laughs> picked up on this concept so they've been talking about flow in the kind of psychological term of flow, as in a task that you're absorbed in and that your individual sense of self evaporates slightly in your concentration on the mm -hmm. task. And mm -hmm. it's a euphoric experience. And then Daniel comes in with this. So we're interested here in the types of coherence that can occur where there are differences, right? Differences of experience, differences of perspective. And yet, like, so I'll just tie a couple other words here that Jordan said. He said it's kind of like flow. If we think of flow from fluid dynamics in terms of like laminar flow versus turbulent flow, there's a more flow is less entropy. And actually not just less entropy, but syntropy. The movement towards holes that are greater than some of the parts. And so I think that's what we're really interested in, in collective sense making, is how do we come together in relationship mm. that has less friction less entropy relationally, more syntropy, where the group of us has capacities, has emergent properties that aren't found in any of us in isolation. That coherence is that phenomena that emergent properties arise from. I feel like I got sucked into a time tunnel and went back to them <laughs> talking about the same point. But this was actually a completely different part of the conversation. And they're still talking about people have different perspectives and it creates an interesting... Yeah. Um, yeah. So the reason the metaphor, they went down a little whirlpool there, is that they like the idea of flow, right? Mm -hmm. As a psychological state. They like the idea of flow as in fluid flow, fluid dynamics, laminar flow, as he said. But the problem is that, well, first of all, he mentions that fluid flow creates centropy, and centropy is not a scientific word. It's like a crunchy <laughs> new age word as far as I know. But, you know, it's kind of the idea that complexification occurs and like a fractal or something is creating extra stuff. That doesn't happen with fluid flow right laminar flow but they sort of get a bit mixed up with the metaphor because like turbulent flow to continue the metaphor is one that has a lot of entropy it creates heat and slows the water down it's a bunch of forces acting against each other but that's kind of good from the game b dynamics because that's very creative and there's interactions happening and new things going on where laminar flow is all the water particles like moving rank and file in the same direction and so that's not game b i see they've buzzed your buttons matt by using a technical term in a way that you do not think fits because like for me that was just a cascade of buzzwords right <laughs> and, and like I have no idea if centropy is an actual term associated with flow or not, but I'm I'm more than certain that they are not using <laughs> the kind of 
technical definitions in a meaningful way. So you're giving them credit by being like, you know, they've argued this, but actually if you take the correct definition of lavender flow, that's not what they mean. And I think the bigger point is, Matt, the one that you leaped over <laughs> is that they took a word flow, a definition of flow, and they just used a separate definition because it's the same pronunciation, but it's <laughs> yeah. not okay. You cannot do that. Like you, you, that's taking two different concepts and, and saying they're the same. Because you know? they happen to share the same syntax. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's almost as bad as saying like, I would do something and would the material. Like there's some connection between those two because the way that they signed is mm. similar, but it's a bit different because like, yes, it's flow. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's analogous. It's analogous. But uh, yeah, I take your point very much. So they, like, you can see how the reasoning works. You get some insight into how the reasoning works, which is like, oh, flow. I associate that with water flowing. And then let's work with this metaphor and, you know, see where that takes us. Um, yeah, it's kind of amazing that they consider this to be a useful way to talk or think. Well, lest you think that there's just those two ways to conceptualize flow, Jimmy Wheel flying in at the last minute with a fly kick to knock in some more conceptions of flow for you. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, if I'm hearing right, the question is just how, how can we get together with each other in a way that leaves us smarter, kinder, more creative, more courageous, more resilient than any of us are apart. And me, at least as far as terms, for me, flow is often a bit of a buzzword. I think a lot of people project onto it, but some slightly more precise, like if I'm thinking of examples, and you can tell me if I'm barking up the right tree or not, but like examples I think of is, Victor Turner's notion at University of Chicago of communitas, which is a, it's not simply a collection. It's not just a crowd or a mob. It's a felt presence of coherence among a group. Mm. That actually, I want to highlight as well that that it's not all meaningless babble because like he is using communitas broadly correctly. And he, does have a mild critique in there of, you know, flows a buzzword, let's get down to the brass tacks. Are we talking about yeah. Victor Turner's communitas? But, you know, in reality, we're talking about communitas, fluid dynamics flow, psychological state flow. Mm -hmm. We're talking about everything all at once, <laughs> everywhere. But that isolated sentiment, I, I kind of vibe yeah. with. Yeah, I vibe with that too. It was good to see some awareness that they were relying on a buzzwordy concept. But Jamie did undermine that a little bit immediately afterwards in, in reeling off a bunch of those sort of desirable properties. What were they? You know, being being more courageous, being more resilient, resilient, all of those things, which it should be said also those buzzwords are floating around academia and floating around the corporate world, but they are buzzwords as well. Not really a better definition. Yeah, and one thing, Matt, is that the sense speakers, they do, you know, they do try to get each other to elaborate on points. On occasion, you know, the Omega rule is in effect, but there are efforts to try and ask people to clarify 
what they mean. And this is actually the prompt that Jamie gives that leads to Jordan going into flow and all that kind of thing. So he says this. So you mentioned, uh, um, you said it has a relationship with novelty. What, what prompts you to put that into the mix? Because if I just hear the word coherence, that just feels like, you know, from physics, electronics, whatever, it would just be things in some form of sync with each other. But you added in novelty and anti-fragility, and both of those seem interesting, but they're not what I would have just expected to come from the word. So can you help unpack either the why or the how you got to those you know, you can really summarize this entire conversation as being like struggling to define something that they've just imagined. Yeah, so, you know, this thing can't be talked about, so they define it with metaphors, and then we're hearing Jamie there, you know, querying the metaphor and wondering how we can jam in emergence and creativity and uh, robustness or what is it resilience with this idea of coherence and yeah so um yeah lots of defining going on chris i think that's a very nice point to make at this part matt because there's a little bit you know i mean uh, there's not a little bit this happens multiple times <laughs> but they they kind of take a step back and talk about their metaphors and how good they are communicating the message. So here's a little bit about sense-making and mapping to various different paradigms. But of course, the meta-proposition is that mapping it to a paradigm full stop at all is the problem. So anytime you're actually trying to make sense by mapping to a paradigm, whether the paradigm is a you know, Vishnu or the god Pan or cognitive neuroscience or whatever, you're already recapturing the discourse in a particular way of thinking that limits its capacity to be the thing we're trying to actually do. So the answer to the question is, like if the answer to the question is like the classic Buddhist just whack you in the back of the head, like that's the only real response to that kind of a question is don't go that direction. Sure, okay, so, so yes. And then, but he, so if coherence is this ephemeral emergent property, best never named, never subject to right. reality capture, reality tunnel capture, like right. it's that thing, then how the hell do you scale it? Because we're storytelling monkeys. And at some point we need recipes to help the thing propagate. That just reminded me of how at an earlier point, Jordan said that he's running 70 to 90 distinct oh. paradigms at any given time. Oh, wait. Yeah, I have that for you. You know, getting trapped in paradigms, you, you can just be regurgitating things. But maybe one of the solutions to that problem would be... The Quakers are doing something awesome, but they're running one paradigm. We have to actually say, is, okay, let's run... Well, at the very minimum, let's run both the Lakota and the Quaker paradigms. While we're at it, I'm usually running, I don't know, 70 or 90 distinct paradigms simultaneously all the time. And there's many. And, I mean, and the idea is not to try to collapse them down to a single master paradigm, but actually to allow each one of them to have the particular piece that they're holding, just like eyes and ears. 70 distinct paradigms simultaneously. Those are rookie numbers, Ma. I'm running about 145. <laughs> wow. Wow. I can tell by the guy's look in your eyes, Chris. 
I'm that meme come to life with all the little numbers flashing <laughs> around. That's the paradigm switch. Yep. I, I pity those poor fools that are trapped in a single paradigm. But I guess returning back to their point before, what are they saying? They're saying, aren't they, that it's it's kind of ineffable. You can't really talk about this thing because as soon as you start talking about it in a particular way, a psychology way or a religion way or anything like that, then you pin it down where it's really it's like a meta thing. Game B and coherence is this meta thing that is above and beyond anything that anything else that humans do. That's why you got to buzz in 70 paradigms at once. Just dance between them like a fairy skating <laughs> over the ice. That's how you stay above the water. And Matt, lest you think it's just Jordan that can keep that many paradigms juggling in his mind, here's Daniel talking about the importance of multi-perspectivism. Now, there's a really important distinction that we're saying something that is different than the way that some people think about multi-perspectivism, which is we're not saying, I'm not saying, all perspectives are equally valid. And I'm also not saying that there is no way to integrate them into higher order understanding. I'm saying all perspectives have some signal. <laughs> generally have some noise and that perspective is itself a reduction of information on the reality being perceived. And that's from the, actually from the quantum phone at all from just the definition actually of observer observing observed. I can't take myself out of reality to observe it in a unitary way. And if I'm observing you now versus in a different state, I'm going to observe different things right? Someone else at a different time. If I'm observing the west side of the house versus the east side of the house versus the aerial view versus inside the house, they all give me some signal, some truth about the nature of the house. Just to be clear, not an elephant. There's a very different point from the elephant, right? This is, mm -hmm. if you see the house from different perspectives, they'll give you a piece of information about the house. Yeah. It's not the elephant analogy man no, it's a very different point very different point very different point and it's not the benefit you get from having different people around with different perspectives on the house slash elephant it's your zipping around from paradigm to paradigm from each of those paradigms you're seeing it from a different point of view which you know i can see the benefit of that that's really helpful i can see that you keep it in the quantum foam mat you just you're skimming off the quantum phone of sense making spooning it into your metacognition latte and chugging it down <laughs> to open the third who's been behind you all along describing the house <laughs> in binary. <laughs> in binary. Yeah, they're not making the same point again and again and again throughout this massive session. They're different. I'm glad you're saying that's not what they're doing because they, they wouldn't be doing that, Matt. And let's take a moment to luxuriate in this idea about sense-making jazz. Keep that in your third space. I'm noticing as you're saying that I'm trying to get to the feeling of it, which is by the way, quite hard. But uh, one of the places I landed was that, you know, we still have that nice example of the jazz band. Fortunately, we actually have concrete examples of what these things are like to be in. And I'm noticing that as a player in the jazz band, that feeling of not being subordinated to the whole, but actually somehow being supported and achieving a higher level of individuation is felt 
So the question, of course, what does that feel like? It's interesting to notice that while some people, not many, I think, try to think about that strategically, like, okay, how do I make sure that I am, in fact, protected? Most people are, in fact, proceeding by, do I actually feel like I am increasing my autonomy? Do I feel more agentic and more autonomous and more able to express my essence or selfness into the world? So I'm interested, like, what does that feel like to actually move into that place? And if we can do it, like, what would it actually have felt like for the single cell going into the multi-cell? Because there's something about the quality of that that we can actually grasp at that level. There's a little bit of the Jordan Peterson experience in the DNA coming in there. Like you can experience the sensation of a single cell organism becoming a multi-cell organism by being in a jazz band. Like, you know, I get the analogy, but I suspect the two processes are somewhat dissimilar in important ways. Are you saying we can't get the subjective experience of, say, the mitochondria permeating the prehistoric cell, you know, thus paving the way for that paradigm shift in biology from single-celled organisms to multi-celled organisms? Isn't that what we can experience when we're engaged in sense-making, Chris? Surely. I'm an omega rule guy, so I look for the kernels, the diamonds in the rough, so that... You know, my, I would never be so reductive to say that that is a silly point. I guess I'm more interested to hear more, more riffing on this metaphor about a jazz session. So it just so happens Jamie Wheeler is willing to do that for me. So let's let's listen to this and let's just vibe a bit, Matt. Let's just hear the sense speaking jazz play over us. And it feels like there also needs to be a a tolerance for ambiguity and a willingness to get messy. Yeah. So back to the jazz guys, I mean, consistently the most righteous jams come out of kind of going in down into the mud as a band, you know, someone's off noodling, exploring a theme or, you know, and it's not actually danceable. It's not anything. And it's even to the point of just unspooling entirely. And then some Quicksilver starlight comes out of that. You know, and then it all gels. And it's that patience, to your point about timing, Jordan, you know, it's the patience to let it all come undone in order to come back together in some new emergent form that seems almost essential. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that like when you were described, because I mean, as soon as you described organisms and organs and that, I was like, oh, yeah, OK. So social media, digital narcissism, fucking scraping everybody else's jam, biting people's rhymes, poaching people's dharma feels like the cancerous yep. um, impulse that we're experiencing right now. But there, I made a mistake, I realized for one second when he said scraping other people's jazz or jam, Jams. I was imagining like somebody stealing the jam <laughs> from the, the jams. And then I realized, no, he means like taking their songs off the internet. But I, my metaphorical attunement was, you know, just slightly off key. So I, I was like imagining somebody sneaking over to your house and reaching their knife across to steal a bit of your jam off your toast. Yeah, look, it, it is fair to say that this conversation is 70% metaphor and they really like the jazz improvisation metaphor, people in harmony but improvising, it's creative, we're in cohesion, but we're not in lockstep. Yeah, it, it doesn't fit but, with I, – I'm stuck on the laminar flow thing because it's not laminar flow. <laughs> it doesn't fit with that analogy. Matt, 
what you're describing is like when jam sessions go good, but we haven't considered what happens when jam sessions go bad. Is there some, maybe there's some grind to cover there. We have to change that. So there's like not just a new sense making and culture and experience, but also new infrastructure and new social structures, probably beyond the scope of what we'll get to today. But even if we take the balance sheet away, there's the like, is someone wanting to take up more space in the jam session because of unmet identity needs? And do they actually care about the felt experience of somebody else who's seeking to express something? And do we actually feel, do we actually feel each other? And are we coming from enough wholeness that I'm not relating out of need most of the time? Yeah. Yeah. And musicians call that cutting, right? Like Like if somebody deliberately outplays the other person, yeah. And leaves the and leaves their contribution diminished versus accretive. Yeah. Right. Those are cutting sessions and that's bad that's form. Play with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of focus on the process, on what it would feel like to be aware of the truly coherent game B stuff going on, which we must emphasize is conversations, right? Like it is people Don't be so reductive. Don't you dare, Matt. Don't you dare <laughs> sully sense-making by reducing it to conversations. If anything, it is the object which emerges from conversations. All right. It is, it is not conversations in and of themselves. Oh, you How know dare what? you? I, had, I know. <laughs> and you know what? I'm reminded of a direct quote here, which is I made that mistake of taking the state for the stage, which is probably what I did just there. Probably what I did. That's right. Yeah. That sounds like the kind of thing that you you do that you know well, I, I do i do do that from time to time so yeah there's so many metaphors but particularly like the star wars ones we like the borg one that was cool um the jazz one but yeah like they talk about other ones too like changing global culture being at like a crystalline phrase transition in a, in a fluid and uh, th- these words of discernment and anti-fragile and coherent state induction methods I'd say it's 70% metaphor and 20% jargon. I think that's, that's unfortunately probably the keyest. And uh, all of this is tying into this thing which you find in these spaces, I think, quite often, that when you get down to it, there's a kind of an elevation of the anti-modern or the intuitive, the, the non-GMA side of things. And since GMA is essentially anything related to civilization, then what's in game B, what's in coherence and all of those things, it often comes back to spiritualism and uh, a kind of like religious or, or at least ecstatic conception of things and they're careful to warn about the danger of taking like peak state taking these experiences of non-dualistic conscience from taking drugs or whatever as the goal like that's not what they're talking about so for example where we are culturally these days is a lot of people are stumbling into these spaces via broad access to ecstatic technologies so whether that's transformational festivals or, you know, transformational technologies or whatever it is, or or psychopharmacology, you know, all these things. People are bumbling into these spaces on purpose or not 
They're getting there. They're recognizing, holy shit, we're in the deep end. And or this is rad. This is awesome. This is terrifying. This is powerful. Right. Whatever it will be that they, they know it when they're getting there, even if they're not 100 percent sure of how they got there. And then the moment they're no longer in that coherent field, we're back to trying to make sense of it in the prison house of language, telling stories and making analogies or metaphors. Yeah, it's easy to mistake this as tech bro stuff because they definitely do use a lot of that jargon. They use phrases like iterating this and oh, what else do they say? Double click. Double click. There is a bunch of them that they use. But, but really, I think at base, as you say, it is a spiritual thing that they are advocating for this personal growth and enhancing these vague things of personal sovereignty or wholeness or whatever. So it strikes me as kind of new age. And as you say, they really do valorize traditional, well, at least their image that they have in their heads of traditional pre-modern ultra-spiritual societies. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, Matt, the distinction between state and stage, which relates to these concepts. So this is Jordan Hall making that distinction explicit. I was thinking, okay, so state and stage. Um, Obviously, for me, the first thing that comes up in terms of state is there's the constant recurrence of the trap of taking the state for the stage. All right, so let's carefully partition them and say, okay, they're not. And to the degree to which you've gone to Burning Man and taken drugs, you are not, in fact, actually else anywhere. But maybe you saw a glimpse that there is somewhere else to go. That's neat. So very carefully. So the first is big red flag, state is not stage. State is not going to get you to stage by itself. Take it slow. Okay, so then what happens in state? So the stage is not, is not the real thing. It's the state that's the real thing. No, no. The other way. Stage is the real thing. And state uh-huh. is the transient experience that like drugs might get you to or like some peak yoga sense or something like that right yeah and and once again we see that familiar form of (laughs) they take a couple of words familiar words and then embark on this mission to add meanings to them and distinguish between them and that provides them with a a scaffolding from which to sense make right in this case it's state and stage and there are others right so for example I got another piece where I've taken a whole lot of drugs together with a bunch of people. So we really feel close and we work some stuff out over, over ayahuasca. And then I'm going to do is kind of like put these in the same space and pretend that by sticking them together really hard, I've actually achieved some new synthesis, right? In fact, what I have is I have three distinct things that aren't actually, actually integrated. So it's the difference between a puzzle and a photograph or even a puzzle and a real piece of reality. And I think we're into this a lot. It's almost like the, uh, the group equivalent of spiritual bypass, which is that we can arbitrarily generate a simulation of each of the artifacts of coherence. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get it's, the feeling it, like he could meditate on the distinction between a puzzle and, uh, sorry, what was the second thing? A photograph. A photograph and a puzzle. He could meditate on the distinction between those two things for hours, I feel. They, they called it like a generative function. And I actually think that's right. <laughs> this is a thing from which they can endlessly generate more thought bubbles from any given input. So one thing, Matt, we mentioned earlier is after talking about that, there's a bit where 
Jamie attempts to riff just a little bit or, or clarify what Jordan's saying. And then Jordan, you know, we, we'd seen a smackdown before where he was like, no, it's not really about Taoism. And, and here's another example of that dynamic in play. So they have an experience and then try to turn it into a science. So prescriptive versus descriptive. Both, really. They mistake one. Yeah. They do prescription and description because poetry is not really description. It's evocative. Figurative versus literal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the, the trick is we have to actually be able to use language as some way of creating a, a resonance frequency or protocol match that generates a capacity for communication that is not itself specifically semantic. <laughs> you, you have to admire this it's ability. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's incredible. Like a resonance frequency or protocol match that generates a capacity for communication. Wow. That, that, not is, that is not in itself specifically semantic. That last clause is important because until you added that, I was confused. But uh, yeah. that, <laughs> it, is like, it is like jazz. It's, you know, instead of saying, they're using resonant frequency figure of language. But the thing I, I want us not to lose, though, Matt, is the correction, right? Jamie tried to say prescriptive versus descriptive. And Jordan is like, no, no, no. No, no, no. It's both simultaneously. As we saw that happened earlier, it also happens again later. Here's them talking about whether humans are strong or not. The fertilized egg is fragile in the context of once it goes through its developmental arc, an extraordinarily resilient being. An adult human is kind of a kick-ass animal really, really good at being animal. But of course, the fertilized egg is still extremely fragile. So the question we might ask is like, well, what's our womb? Well, I'd actually push back on that. I'd say a fucking adult human is, is, a, is a weak, naked, hairless ape who get his ass kicked by everybody, but with culture, with the instruction manual, he's badass. I actually disagree. I would uh, point out that the, the things that just basic humans can do, like throw shit accurately, are actually rather astounding in the context of the animal kingdom. And the plasticity of the design parameters of what the human body can actually be trained to do that is not coded in the instinct of a given animal is as impressive as the flexibility at the level of idea space. That there is no Brizhnikov in the animal kingdom. And to the degree which there is the Brizhnikov, that animal cannot also then become an Aretha Franklin. Like that's actually pretty fucking intense. <laughs> So there, Jamie. <laughs> Look, Chris, Chris, on the off chance, Jamie, on the off chance, the minuscule chance you listen to this, I just want to say, we feel for your brother. Uh, it was, it's, it's really not fair. He's right. Humans are weak, relatively speaking, physically, but are they? No, Jamie, we can chuck things well. We're good at throwing spears. But that's what Jimmy said. He said, when you have culture, humans are actually formidable. Jamie's point was pretty good, especially by the standards of this conversation. <laughs> it's really, it felt very unfair to, for him to be smacked down like this. Um, anyway. Oh, no, Matt, there's, look, I'll get off this point. We'll leave for Jamie's travails after this, but I just want to give that, even when he tries to, like, clarify beforehand if his metaphor is okay, is acceptable, it doesn't always go as planned. Does that track? Yes, for you guys? Okay. Um, now, I know, obviously, analogies of humans and brains and minds to computers are obviously problematic at a whole bunch of different levels. 
but as far as a simple one, does this also seem to be the notion of connecting CPUs or computers in serial, such that the connected computational power and capacity is greater than any of the things in between, and that they might actually even be able to tackle problems that any individual computer would be incapable of solving. No, Matt, you might be under the misillusion that this is another metaphor to talk about things collectively being able to outperform individual stuff. But set that aside. So it was all right, right? This was him talking about a computer analogy saying, yeah, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but... But, you know, parallel distributed computation, it's a thing. It seems to be relevant to the stuff they're talking about, about, you know, individual component parts coming together to create something bigger than the sum. But... So we heard an intake of breath. What was that? Actually, no. And that goes back to the notion of coordination. So that style of connection is coordination. And it does have the characteristic of increasing capacity. Um, And in fact, increasing capacity in a fashion that is, well, at least depending on the specific kind of problem and the physical capacity to do compute, oftentimes a better topology for solving particular kinds of problems. Does that make sense what I just said? It does. I'm just wondering, is there a magic in the supercomputer? Yeah, poor Jeremy. Look, Jordan is the master of metaphor. He owns all the analogies. Nobody else gets to make analogies, Chris. JB's analogy, by the rules of this conversation, I always want to emphasize, was perfectly fine, right? Parallel distributed computing, got a whole bunch of little neurons in your head. They can't do much things by themselves. You connect them all together. They can do stuff collectively. There isn't, as Jordan said, what is it, a a controller or managing things. So Jamie's point was fine. Why couldn't he just let Jamie have his metaphor? And then he made him endorse his metaphor. Does that track, Jamie? Yes, it does, Jordan. Yes, yes, Jordan. (laughs) Look, I feel bad, dude. If I just, you know, the dynamics of conversation, this is a meta conversation about sense making. This is is what we do. And I promise we'll leave it, Jamie, after this. We'll leave it. We like you. We we (laughs) feel for you. This is why we're pointing this out. So Jamie is like, all right, let's just drop my metaphor. All right, It's, it's got issues, but no. Jordan and Daniel will will not allow that. They have another suggestion. I mean, if, if it's if it's a problematic metaphor, we can abandon it. I'm just thinking. No, like, it's a very thing, it's a very good thing, metaphor right. and problematic. Yeah. So it's, it's, if yeah. we don't want to abandon it, we actually want to have it be helpfully. Double click on why. Yeah, there are elements of parallel processing and elements of serial processing that are important, and then there's something that can't be fully contained in parallel and serial. We're jamming. <laughs> They're going to have to spend the next 10 minutes like deconstructing exactly what's wrong, how limited Jamie's metaphor was. Oh, God. Uh, so, yeah, that was, I mean, look, I know, I know it's a bit mean, but it's just that is a good encapsulation of the dynamics of the conversation yeah. and who has the driving power. Who isn't? And it's, you know, I'm not saying that this is a reflection of their actual status in the actual world. Just purely in the dynamics of this conversation, this Mm -hmm. is the way it plays out. And you can't help but feel sympathy for Jamie and like a slight frustration at Jordan and Daniel. Well, in a way, Chris, you and I reflecting on the dynamics, the topology 
to use one of their pretentious terms of this conversation, is very, very game B. This is what you're supposed to do, right? You know, analyze this stuff, reflect upon it. Rule Omega, Matt. Where's Rule Omega? Well, actually, we're doing Rule Omega better because we're saying that Jimmy's metaphor is done. But they are, you know, look, they're saying it's problematic, but it's also good. And that's what makes it even better. Jimmy, there's another angle you haven't considered. So, Well, it's good because it gives them opportunities to split more definitions and build more sense-making scaffolding of the distinctions that they're drawing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, as we said, the whole discussion around coherence leads to this focus on how we can bring this collective sense-making apparatus of GMB that cannot be spoken of directly into like a larger framework. And as I said, the bit that is interesting is that a lot of it, seems to reflect a yearning for religion or tradition, for example. So it's like this, she did this ripping album called Amazing Grace in a Watts gospel church in like 1974, and then all the footage was lost. And it's just come out, like I, I literally wept seeing this, this fucking trailer, it was unreal. And she starts singing the song Amazing Grace. And she just takes that A and she just does it, she goes all over, the, she's like 29 years old at the time. And, but, the, but the gospel the choir who's backing her up are like giving it up. Like they're feeling the shimmy shakes, they're feeling the juice, they're giving it up for it. And then they start praising and testifying and like the whole thing just goes through the roof. And you're like, oh my God. And then there's the swaying, the clapping, the dancing, the moving. And you're like, it is weeping for the humanity of our wounding. It is praising, you know, the divinity of our possibility. And it's connecting like literally like church as a verb. And you're like, ah, oh, shit, man, we got it. We, you know, we just need to dust that shit off and like create new versions. Yeah, like I was saying before, Chris, the weird thing is, is that they use a lot of this tech bro language, failure states and checksums and iterating things and double click on on stuff, and it kind of sounds like they're trying to innovate a new kind of technological social system that's going to make space travel happen or something like that. But when it comes down to it, what they're really into are these ecstatic experiences that is this sense of coherence that arises. And they hold up examples like this, you know, getting in the flow with the jazz, these references to psychoactive substances that can help promote it. There's references to Buddhist enlightenment, that kind of thing. They're about touching the infinite. Yeah. And there is this touching of the infinite, but in the mundane activities of daily life aspect as well. So, for example, it feels to me like the piece that socially we're missing the most these days, to your point about Bali and Burning Man and, you know, transformational culture is that people are really good at the atom bomb peak experiences these days. They can blow shit up sky high. They're shit. They're terrible at the other 360 days a year. The simple stuff. Yeah. And eat right. Sleep right. Yeah. Like a daily practice and like even like a revival of meditate, collective Sabbath, collective Sabbath. Tone the bell. Yeah. Smash the duck. Smash the, <laughs> Smash the duck. So I don't know if you've got a special clip on this, but they talk about reinstigating prayer at mealtime in order to get that sense of deep gratitude and have a bit of a meditation about things. Yeah. So Jordan Hall talks about saying grace before meals and how that was a part of his childhood, but also the new atheist thing. And then he kind of rediscovered 
the beauty of having a ritual where you're thanking people for a meal. And it's kind of recreating, like you say, it's not just doing what everyone else is doing when they say grace. It's doing it better. It's not a single paradigm, Chris. It's reinvented. It's embracing multiple paradigms. So there wouldn't be so traditionalist or boring to just say, hey, we should do Christian stuff. But they're influenced by these things, ritual. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big ritual man myself. But uh, so let's hear Jordan riff on that a little bit. So I would always forget to have my gratitude practice. But when I said, you know what, I'm going to do this before I eat. I'm going to do my gratitude practice. I'm just going to bind something that just has this really cool characteristic of being really hard to forget, i.e. eating, with something that's really useful and has a little bit of cultural vector and just combine the two. And then it just began to expand from there. So this is, of course, the recreation of ritual that is also part of the story. Yep. And that's a lot of culture hacking we can do, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. grace, gratitudes at dinner, um, Shabbos, you know, Sabbath, a day down, a down day every week to reflect and reset. Like these are simple things that are easy to dust off and reanimate. And I, and I really think, again, I think there's a lot that can be open sourced. We just have to make sure that we're not open sourcing the technology. We're open sourcing the technology to in, bring into insight. So don't open source the info. Open source the things that build developmental capacity. The generative process. Open source, the finger pointing at the moon, not the moon. The plans to the rebellion. <laughs> not the Death Star. But in terms of what they're talking about, yes, they're keen on reinstigating these amazing concepts like Sunday or prayer at mealtimes. Um, I think I've been influenced. It's rubbing off on me because I was thinking it's not religion, but it's not not religion. Then I thought, shit, that's just something a sense maker would say. So instead, I'm going to say it's a lot like a religion, Chris. Like it gets much more explicitly spiritual towards the end. There's a lot of talk of the enlightenment and dharma and the bodhisattva imperative, mythopoetic understandings of the current age. Yeah, I think it'll help to play some clips. And I also think it would be helpful to note that whenever you use Buddhist terminology, it somehow sounds less religious, more philosophical. I mean, Jordan Peterson, though, to his credit, and Jonathan Pajot do a good job of making Christian theology sound scientific and, and technical, but these guys are more on the Buddhist gig. So here's Daniel Schmachtenberger coming in with some discussion about Dharma and dogma. And earlier you were talking about education that is not teaching info, but that is facilitating epiphany. Yep. When someone has real epiphany and they figure out something that's useful and then they teach other people and the other people don't understand why, and that happens a few generations, the Dharma becomes dogma. Right? Like the thing that, w that had real wisdom just becomes a thing to do because the authorities told us. And then liberation actually looks like rebelling against it. Mm -hmm. And even if we're submitting to it, we don't really get the gist. Mm -hmm. And so to not have Dharma become dogma and become a tr control system, it has to be alive and real and rediscovered for everyone. It gets pretty religious, spiritual towards the end. Like for most of the time, I couldn't figure out exactly what it was that they were really talking about underneath all those layers of metaphor and definition splitting and neologisms and jargon. But, you know, towards the end, they talk about non-attachment, referencing Buddhism and practicing humility, referencing Christianity. And they emphasize that these kinds of ritual and these local relationships is like crucial for making rule and meager and game B happen. 
So it does feel like a blast from the past. It does. And, you know, I said, and I'll have an example of it, that it's referencing Buddhist terminology, but they also do touch on Christian teaching a little bit earlier. So let's first of all hear Daniel riffing on a kind of Buddhist framework for how this applies. And so we're getting exponentially larger levers on our choices, but we're not getting exponentially better choice making. And so we are getting the power of gods without getting the love or wisdom of gods to wield that power. That's a self-termination scenario. I don't see any scenario where we don't get the power of gods. That seems eminent and unavoidable. And so there really, like, there really is this enlightenment or bust thing that I see, which is if we have catastrophic level tech, not just isolated state actors, but that can be radically decentralized, who gets to be totally fucked up? Nobody. Or even not be very omni-considerate that can do catastrophic stuff on accident. So this is like the existential bodhisattva? Yes, Mm -hmm. it is. This is the bodhisattva imperative actually has to become universal for us to make it through this phase. And that wasn't true in the Bronze Age or Stone Age or Iron Age or any of the other ages because we could just kill a lot of people and we could destroy a lot of environments, and we did. Now it's just kill everybody in all environments. Do you understand the Bodhisattva imperative? Do you know what a Bodhisattva is, Matt? Not really. Educate me. It's uh, essentially like almost akin to a Buddhist Buddhist saint, but more so like an enlightened being who does not enter nirvana and instead comes back to help other beings enter nirvana beforehand. And so it's having that compassion for other beings as your core guiding force. And so we need the Bodhisattva principle to become a universal imperative so that our society can transcend its petty rivalist games of DMA and and transcend to a sense-making utopia of enlightened Bodhisattvaism. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty easy to get the basic point there, which is that all of this technology and science and so on gives us lots of power to blow ourselves up, destroy the planet. So we need to transition into this age of Aquarius, sorry, game B, to have the wisdom to use this power wisely, (laughs) to use that word again. Now, so they can't mean, like they emphasize a few times that the game B hasn't been done yet, even though it's super referencing traditional religions and also traditional hunter-gatherer society culture, like I'm sure they're not so ignorant as to think that a a particular pre-modern band was like in harmony with the entire world and didn't have conflict and, and so on. I think they probably did, right? You're the anthropologist, you tell me. I mean, yes, that is safe to say, Matt. No, the humans throughout history, none of them have achieved perfect knowledge and compassion. Um, But uh, (laughs) I uh, I thought so, but I thought I'd check. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, who am I to say? Maybe some of them did. But what you're touching on, I think, is that they are kind of talking about the corruption of these ancient wise teachings. These were proto-sense-making without modern technology. So if we could combine the insight of the Bodhisattvas and Jesus with an understanding of modern technology, we can get the game B. And obviously, game A has corrupted all of those insights. So, for mm, example... Turner mentioned it earlier when he was talking about 
take a teaching from Jesus or from anyone and then see what game A does within it when it becomes like how the teachings of the guy who emphasized forgiveness became the basis of the Crusades and the Inquisition is like a really great example. Like how the fuck did we figure out how to do that? And um, so there's still a similar thing that happens when if someone makes their living by sharing wisdom and they're able to split test optimize the nature of what wisdom people respond to the most and what persona expressions and they can click optimize and they can even just allow Facebook's algorithms to click optimize the version of wisdom expression that lands the most. You get a, uh, a capture of wisdom by rivalrous games. And this is the kind of shit we have to be like really honest with each other about and honest with ourselves about to create an, an information ecology that doesn't have disinformation and bullshit in it. Because right now, like if, if true information about reality is a source of competitive advantage within rivalrous games, then I both want to withhold true information and I want to disinform. And I want to miss signal. Okay, slow down there. Say all that again because that last two sentences felt like important. Were they important to you, Matt? Those last two sentences? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's just a struggle, isn't it? You have to decipher. There's like a little code book and you're continually deciphering what all of this pretentious, unnecessarily elaborate language is actually saying. But it's basically saying this game B stuff, it's like the keys to the magic castle, right? It'll give us this amazing view of reality. So we have to be, and it's going to be so appealing to people and we have to be careful that it's not abused and not co-opted. There's also that reference to a really familiar thing, which is that the various religions have become corrupted. Now, again, you're the student of religion, Chris, but my vague perception is that that's that's always been a belief hasn't it they're like amongst pretty much all religions so there's always been a sense that the the true message has been corrupted we have to go back and and find the, the purer form of it yeah that's i mean that's at the heart of reformist and fundamentalist missions or uh, movements all throughout history like in all sorts of different religions is return to the source or the or the true teaching that was buried underneath the cultural layers and there's another religious motif that they hit on a kind of introspective one which which comes up often in kind of spiritual talk because the other part of that conversation of course was you know they like that phrase rivalrous games but they're warning about this possibility that sense making could end up descending into guruism right like there mm. could be competition amongst the sense makers and they always have to be <laughs> wary of this and there's this one solution to that which jordan hall previously mentioned in his discussion with david fuller when he basically said he was recording and putting out the conversation but he didn't want an audience he never thinks of an audience he just puts it on youtube and if an audience comes that's good but that's not the mindset that he takes in cultivating an audience and it relates to this point which he talks about you know maybe the correct thing to do is just stay silent it's a pain in the ass, but we have to, like, every single time we go to, like, when you think about these kinds of problems, you, at least for me, I keep coming back to the same basic place. So, obviously, the prophylactic against this entire thing is just, you know, broadcast. Right? As soon as wisdom is, in fact, just lived relationally, it's why, it's why landmark is bigger than Vipassana. Right. I mean, they've gone, they've gone, they've diluted to lowest common denominator. They've, they've made no bones about putting people in exposed, vulnerable states and upselling the living shit up. Yeah. It is transactional. Yeah. It's 
there's going to be problems. If it's broadcast, there's going to be problems. I just have to speak to the irony of us talking about this on broadcast. Well, fortunately. Three white men specifically within about... About, about roughly the same age. I think we're actually the same person. I also have to speak to the irony about the, <laughs> the perils of transactional, potentially deceptive broadcast because I was just watching a YouTube video of Schmachtenberger promoting brain pills. <laughs> so, I don't they, know. All, they all are selling brain pills, right? Aren't they like all non nootropics? As, as far as I know, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, you know, there's something transactional to that. But, yeah, like, people are hypocrites. We know this. It's a given. But it's just like the kind of constant restating of these kind of debates which always existed in spirituality communities, New Age seekers and techno-utopians. It's like it's got all of it mixed in together in this heady stew. Mm. And it's presented as if... They're being reflective on those issues, but it's reflective to a specific point and not on the like the yeah. broader nature of, of what they're up to. <laughs> yeah, the other, the other funny thing, it's easy to forget that the stuff that they're reflecting on is on, on something that doesn't exist. Like as they emphasize many times in the video, Game B doesn't exist. They don't even have the words to describe it. They're not really sure how to create it. And all of these reflections, like about what are we going to do with the unfathomable power? It could be abused. What about if there are rivalrous games between ones of us maybe promoting Game B and you know, getting all kinds of followers? I mean, isn't it a bit precipitate to be worrying about these things? Maybe you should start with just ex describing what it is that you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think Daniel Schmachtenberger's thing is a little bit worrying about the collapse of society, right, because of these technologies, world-destroying technologies that we now have. He's like, he's Jerome Larnier on steroids. So I think that's kind of his gig is, is warning that we need to do something or it's all going to come crashing down and the specifics of what's going to cause it. it could be anything right it could be environmental collapse it could be self-replicating robots it could be runaway ai whatever it is but whatever it is it's very complicated matt and it it's it sense making as a solution well that's right all of these sound like terrible problems but they can be solved by having a really good conversation that's what it is isn't it i mean these these are rules for communicating yeah, well, it's fortunate, really, because that's what these guys are good at. But, but, um, so let's turn to Daniel can round things off by, by making this like dystopian possibility clear as it comes towards the terminal parts of the conversation. We get some talk about how this has all happened before and we need to break the cycle. And then we have to be very mindful of the fact that you know, this is what the 12th time we've kind of gone through this cycle on who's counting which we got the axial age we had the uh christian islamic era we had you know we had a series of points where there's like a, okay guys here's a whole new level up you know somebody has an epiphany they have a real epiphany it's for real and they're like all right this time it's not turning to dogma guys let's get it right 
the trick, of course, here is that we kind of have to. Okay, so this comes to what you were saying earlier that I wanted to comment on. I'm going to say something that will sound like really inspiring or depressing or ridiculous. Um, I'll go with ridiculous. Go. <laughs> so that's a tease, Matt. That's a tease. Mm-hmm. What is it? What's the... Uh, I think this will be our final clip as well, but is it going to be inspiring, depressing, or ridiculous? What do you vote for? I think it's going to tie everything up with the bright red bow. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so if you find sense-making you know, frustrating, if you find all this endless metaphorizing and these rivalrous games <laughs> to be tiring, then... I think this will help you. This is the master key for what this has all been about. Daniel is there, like Yoda, coming in from the darkness to lead us to the light. This is the being-doing dialectic. Being grounded in a being that is actually full means unattached to needing fullness from the doing, achieving a particular thing. Mm. And yet, like a way I think about it is, there's a fullness of what is, but I, I stop thinking about reality as a noun and think about it as more verb-like. I can have a fullness with what is, and I can also recognize an evolutionary trajectory. I can recognize the beauty of life and be nourished by it, and I can also know that it's mine to add to the beauty of life as best I can. And that's being, appreciating the beauty of life, doing, adding to the beauty of life, becoming, increasing our capacity to be and do at greater depth. (laughs) Bravo! Bravo! Bravo. That was something. I remember that quote well, and I remember the music coming in and thinking, thank God it's over. It's over. I can stop now. The sense making is finished for now. Live, love, laugh, dream. It's very inspirational quotes, up the wazoo, beautiful stuff. Is the sense making ever finished, though, Matt? Is our work actually done? I've got another couple of metaphors I can play. <laughs> please, <laughs> please don't. Um, <laughs> everyone knows all about the metaphors by now. You've only heard about 50%. So I, I would say that's even an overestimate of how many <laughs> is, that we played. So, mm, yeah, there was so much, so much. This has been a, a dramatic venture into sense making so i'm gonna turn the lens on you matt and say what's your summary what's your final takeaway i don't think we'll be back to the sense makers for a while after this Mm. so you know what what are your views on this conversation and the sense making ecosystem more generally uh not really my cup of tea um i don't want to spoil the surprise but i have a sense that when we run this bad boy through the garometer it's gonna blow the fucking doors off um yeah it feels like it's hitting pretty much all of them but it's like that quote from anchorman like i'm not even angry i'm just impressed it really is amazing stuff the way that they build something out of nothing that they create these mind palaces for themselves and then tropes through them um discovering new things and putting on new corridors and new towers to this thing uh, on the fly it's pretty pretty impressive i mean we've heard this kind of stuff before with jordan peterson but in the end it's like a, a pavlova or like you know one of these people that don't know a pavlova does anyone know what a pavlova is 
It's, it's I don't like know. A, I don't know. <laughs> I'm one of the ones that don't. It's like a meringue. You know, you take eggs and sugar, you beat it up, you bake it, and it's this fluffy, insubstantial Those thing. Those are the white things, right? The white thing. Yeah, that just melts in your mouth. Because in the end, what were they talking about? They're talking about how everything, game A, everything that's happened in the world pretty much up till now is bad. We need to do this thing. We can't really describe this thing, except it's everything that's good. And we need to get spiritual and connect with the people that we love. And hopefully the good thing will self-organize and blossom and we'll have a new age of Aquarius. Like in a nutshell, that's what they spent two and a half, three hours talking about, right? Yeah, you kind of stole my summary because I was just going to attempt to summarize in two minutes, like the main takeaway points. <laughs> I did and it I, in ten seconds, mate. <laughs> so, but and I think you know we've we've already done that, so it doesn't serve anyone for me to repeat the lessons. And like there is that feeling where you will have had it as a listener to this content of being like. But was that the same clip or is that, are you playing this part? And no, it's like that. It's the same motifs repeated with new analogies, calling back to old analogies, the same points repeated in different metaphors over and over and over again. And I don't see this as fundamentally different from Jordan Peterson or Jonathan Peugeot or any variety of other obscurantist specialists. That's what is here. And it is not to say that people cannot extract anything useful from this. They cannot enjoy it. There is an enjoyment to it as a kind of jazz performance. Yeah. Where it falls down is actual, actual useful information and also an ability to deal with the fact that people are wrong that people are promoting anti-vaccine misinformation, that science actually does provide answers in the flawed research paradigms that are better than just random guesses. And there's a lot of the way that they talk, which I think sounds deep, sounds very well-informed, and they definitely do have this rich array of references and knowledge. But when they talk about things that you know about, like the replication crisis, the way it's referenced, a lot of the stuff is relatively superficial, where their knowledge is a bit deeper, is on the spiritual, old anthropology, spirituality, tech shaman kind of stuff. I think they actually have a depth of knowledge. But on the other stuff, it feels a little bit, uh, not a little bit, it feels a lot of it is you know, yeah. kind of buzzwordy and, and yeah. riffing on things. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't know them. They may well know heaps about floor dynamics. They may well. But what is incontrovertible is that in this conversation, all of those sciencey analogies or, or flowery poetic analogies, they served a very superficial purpose. Like, as we talked about, just given the idea that we're all touching a different part of the elephant. Like, yes, you can use six different metaphors to get that point across. You can compare it to fluid dynamics or distributed computing or whatever, but it doesn't really make the point any more profound. Yeah, and part of my issue in another is that the sense-making ecosystem has been particularly bad at identifying people who are promoting disinformation or who are grandiose narcissists claiming to have resolved theoretical physics. And this is why they are vulnerable to people like Brett Weinstein, 
or to people like Jordan Peterson, because it's a, a facility with language, a facility with metaphor. And that's what the primary value is. What we've done on this episode is 100% not sense making. It's invalid, it's unfair, it's unkind, and it's the kind of thing that essentially makes you persona non grata in the sense making ecosystem. And that's a problem. Uh, yeah. Not that we want to be in the sense making ecosystem, but but uh, that they can't handle that kind of critique. Yeah, the epistemic that they're using is is literally what the stuff that we played. This poetry, allegory, and metaphor, and playing around with words, seeing how they fit, generating ideas, and riffing off them. As they kept saying, it's it is like jazz, and I like jazz, but it's music. It's not an epistemic for understanding how the world works. And as you hinted at, the big problem they've got is they don't have any mechanism of saying that's just wrong. Demons are a poor metaphor for understanding. Uh, how the world works, let alone any kind of rigorous model, it's best just not thinking about demons. Forget about that bullshit. There, there's no mechanism for that. There's only ways to elaborate and complexify and abstractify the idea of demons. I think the only caveat I would add there, Matt, is like, I think it's useful to think about why people believed in demons, which is how sometimes Jonathan Pajot and John Favacchi and the other sense makers would present what they're doing. But that's not what they're doing because they kind of reify the understandings at the same time. They're not like critically dissecting those concepts. At best, they're extremely ambiguous about whether demons and witches and whatnot exist and what do you mean exactly by exist. So um, mm. the sense makers suffer from the same pathology and it should yeah. be clear from the content we've looked at. They have a fluency with language. They're very deft in their handling of metaphor and illusion, but that doesn't make it useful or true or helpful in any way, shape or form. Schmachtenberger can rattle off these sentences, these long paragraphs, talking about being grounded in a being that is actually full and unattached to needfulness, yada, 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 yada. Experiencing the fullness of what is and not thinking of reality as a noun, but more as a verb. And if you're in the right state of mind, if you're in the state of flow, that kind of language just kind of rolls over you. Like it does feel meaningful in the way that poetry might. I mean, we had the same feedback for Jordan Peterson. If you don't think about what he's saying or expect it to connect, then it can be kind of an enjoyable experience. But when you stop and ask what it is actually saying, then it's either nothing or it's, in my mind, pretty trivial. Yep. Yep. So that's enough. Sense making about sense makers. We're we're done. We're probably on holiday from that ecosystem for a little while at least. Our minds are in recovery from dealing with so many high level ideas. But while we're in recovery mode, Matt, it's good to look at how some others have assessed us. Turning the tables. We are the ones being reviewed in our review of reviews. Yay! Good. Yeah. Let's turn the mirror around, hey? I mean, it's always us criticizing other people. It's our turn now. We can take it. We're big boys. That's right. So last episode, we had a review that was 
slightly critical of me, legitimate or not, you know, who can say it focused on me. And your one was just a comment about RoboCop. But this week, Matt, I have a little more of a substantial pointed critique aimed your way, orientated towards you in particular. But it's a five-star review. It's a five-star review. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's important context, I think. So, all right, let's hear it. Can't be that bad. That's right. And I've, you know, I've chosen this at random, Matt. There's, uh, you know, I just, the, the, as it happens, how it falls. You're not scanning for the one listener who dislikes me rather than you. You wouldn't. No. You, you wouldn't no, stoop that I low. I wouldn't do stoop that low. <laughs> so the title of this is Okay, and the reviewer is Diaper Lawyer. So the, take that for what it may be. But so... A well-prepared podcast host and a barely present co-host meet to discuss the internet's greatest minds. (sighs) This is a podcast where the class clown takes the lead in giving out assignments and coming up with ways to organize the work just to have the surfer guy clumsily pretend to have read the material and get confused about basic things like who is giving them the most money and the origin of the show's bits. The class clown tries to save the train wreck of a show, but normally spazzes and spits out a half-assed explanation for a clip they just played. Then the surfer says, oh yeah, good point, mate. I hadn't noticed that. (laughs) Even though he supposedly listened to the material before the show started and listened to it again during the show. Continue listening as this duo inevitably comes to resent each other and the show devolves into passive-aggressive jabs at each other. Oh, and they sometimes have guests and talk about IDW stuff. Oh, my goodness me. My goodness oh, me. My goodness. Called out, Matt. Called out. Okay. So let's take the second part first. He said that the show devolves into passive aggression and us taking jabs at each other. Now, I think... Uh, he might be missing something there. Um, What's that? I, I, I'm not taking jabs at you. Are you taking jabs at me? I'm just I'm joking. Man. Something, Matt. I'm just Your joking. Have just been peppered. <laughs> <Matt>. <laughs> I, I, I like Chris. I like him. I'm, I'm just pretending I don't like oh. him. He nah, does uh, the lady doff protest too much. Uh, I feel like. I hear a note of defensiveness creep in there. But, uh, okay, okay. You, you want defensiveness? I'll give you more defensiveness. I listened to the material. I've just listened to two and a half hours of sense making. And I kept pausing it because my brain kept floating off into the ether and then rewinding so I could pick up the thread again. And I have, I have a thread on Twitter that documents it. I have proof. Whereas Chris... Chris, he listens to it at like double speed and it's just sort of gliding over the top of his cortex. He hasn't suffered. He doesn't suffer like me. It's so unfair. I'm well, well, no, look, this, this guy, I think he's a, uh, an infiltrator. He's there to sow the seeds of dissent. He's like worm tongue whispering in our (laughs) our ears. But uh, look, the thing that I will say is what he's mistaking, Matt, is just, you know, Older brains are just not as capable as younger brains of retaining information about random factoids and that. So, so you know, is is it that Matt doesn't work hard? No, he listened to six hours of Rogan uh, and and on repeat. And like he said, you know, made a thread about this. And I I challenge anyone to listen to this content and make a, a thread detailing <laughs> the, the, like four takeaways. That's achievement. So. 
So yeah, you're just mistaking old age for a lack of effort. Don't don't that, you dare. That's don't you right. Dare say that about Matt. Chris Chris never gets confused. He never mixes up his words or mispronounces things. He's like he's always on point. Oh, like a computer. Yeah, that's See, right. Man, that's see, right, mate. Look, that passive aggressive. This is happening. The seeds of deceit. It's been sown. We're, we're splitting apart. This is no good. I've got, to, I've got to turn to a positive review to get us back on track. Screw you, diaper baby or lawyer diaper. Or <laughs> Don't try to split <laughs> up the band, Yoko. Yeah. What, what have you done? What have you done? Oh, here's a, here's a purely positive one, Matt. I, a purely positive one that that unites us where division has been sown and this is by wires and wires uh one cannot raise walls against what has been forgotten the citadel of the intellectual dark web succumbed during the height of the apocalypse but no army of inhuman liberals had scaled its ramparts no furnace-hearted mainstream news agenda had pulled down its mighty gates the IDW was the secret refuge of the galaxy brain gurus, and no one, not even Obama, could besiege a secret. It's secret. The decoders changed everything. Troop <laughs> shines brothers. Stamp out the last embers of charlatans and bad gurus, please. It's, there's some issues with the grammar, but the, the core <laughs> thing is here, man. <laughs> brothers, man. We're brothers. Stop this internecine podcast fighting. There's nobody that puts more or less effort in. We're brothers. That's right. Brothers in arms, you know, clad in armor, riding our white charges, trotting off to lay siege to the Tower of Iniquity and Deception, probably somewhere I, in Mordor. I have a flash, Matt, of us battling on a fiery bank next to a flowing lava and me screaming mm. at you, you were my brother. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have an image of... listen to the cops. Yeah, I have an image of me like lying there saying, I'm too, I'm too tired to listen to all the clips, Chris. I'm too tired. <laughs> and you saying, I'll carry you. <laughs> I'll carry you, sir. Oh, like, in true sense-making fashion, we've, we've combined Star Wars and, and Lord of the Rings <laughs> At metaphors this is this is a, a nice thing to end such an, mm. a, a sense making episode on restore yeah. balance to the force yeah if, yep. if you will <laughs> yes so, that, that, that was a nice palate cleanser I appreciated it you know, after that last it. one the last one I know. Worm, tongue. Oh my worm, worm tongue diaper lawyer get, get out of here um, Drive. so last thing Matt very last thing an episode would not be complete with our Final shout outs to our lovely, lovely Patreons. And if they've got to this point, they fucking deserve <laughs> it for this episode, I, I I feel. So unless you object, I'm gonna shout them out, Matt. I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna give them their dues. Yep, give it to them, Chris. I'm here for it. Do it. Yes. And so Mother of God, I've got to get a more organized way to to do this. Okay, so Matt, first off, we have conspiracy hypothesizers. We start with the lowest, the the meek shall inherit the earth. That's how I roll. <laughs> and so, in in that vein, yes. <laughs> so you might 
Hold on, Matt. You might be wondering who I will mention in that category. And mm. there you would have Kylie Hudson, Chris Saville, Ian Grieve, Max, Greg Tuff, TW, Joseph Trow, Martin Wesselis, Andrew Demos, No Lips or Joints, Joe Gantteri, Ken Harris, and Cheese Mask. Yay, Cheese Mask, all of you. Thank you. Conspiracy hypothesizers, one and all. Thank you, thank you, from the bottom of our hearts. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. Okay. So that was our conspiracy hypothesizers. Now our revolutionary geniuses, Matt. We have, yeah. we have several. The less meek, but they still in inherit some of our goods. Um, mm. These are great people. These are helping us get the ring to Mordor, the ring of truth. That's just right. Um, we have Parvana Angus, Scott Rehorn, Conspiracy Impostulator. Uh, how was that for pronunciation? Mm. Mm. Christy Coates, Jordan Fernandez, Michael John, Michael Felix. Perverted Circle, Jorgen, Hamilton Verissimo, uh, The Policy Lass, Bill W. 2011, Conal Dunn, and Tam Bednall. Yay. Thank you, guys and girls. Revolutionary geniuses, one and all. Yes. Maybe you can spit out that hydrogenated thinking and let yourself feed off of your own thinking. What you really are is an unbelievable thinker and researcher, a thinker that the world doesn't know. Okay. And last, Matt, the least meek of our patrons, the, the downright forward-facing amongst the supporters. <laughs> the vanguard. The brain gurus. The vanguard of the truth train. Yep, yes. that's right. Woohoo! <laughs> I don't know where uh, this comes from, but I think it might be Jungian analysis. Sure, sure. Jerry, we've had enough of you. <laughs> it's not Jungian analysis. Forget that. It's, it's, it's galaxy brain. Now, who we have here, Matt? We've got Sean Doody, Jeff Finch, Chelsea Tremblay, Mohamed Reza Shuari, Adrian Camilleri, Margaret Richard, Jay Jones, Tim Rossiter, Go-Kart Mozart, Zed Ryan Subodol-Kaffel, and Wakima Mudson. Fantastic stuff. Yes. One and all. They must be Repeat taking... each of their names, Matt. Repeat them all. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I'll, I'll have to take some more of that Qualia mind-brain supplement to be able to remember those all the names until then just accept thank my you. thank you yeah you galaxy being good you. you're yes. sitting on one of the great scientific stories that i've ever heard and you're so polite and hey wait a minute am i an expert i kind of am <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't trust people at all you know it could just 
remake all of these clips with just this conversation we could we could we could we could make an infinite number of them from this conversation maybe we should we is there some point we want to update these clips Um, probably so but it's it's uh yeah it takes effort matt that's the problem yeah i could volunteer to do it i could volunteer to do it or Maybe someone listening could volunteer to do it. Lawyer diaper, for example. Lawyer, lawyer diaper. <laughs> yeah. Are you free this weekend, lawyer diaper? There's a, yeah. there's Show them how it's done. Show them how it's done. I mean, Back I could do it, but I suspect you'd do it better. So, oh, yeah. oh get that passive aggressiveness out of here. <laughs> it was good feedback, Matt. He was very right. He called out the things which needed to be called out. That's, that's <laughs> all we... We'll he, let it go. We'll let he, it go. He gave us five stars. So, that's... He did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, one of All those right. five stars. So yeah. that's end. <laughs> we we are, we've reached the end, Matt. This has been Mammoth. It's probably going to be two episodes combined together. And thank you, everybody, for sticking with us. We'll edit things down. So whatever you've heard now is just the highlights. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, just imagine, imagine how we felt. Um, yeah, my, this yeah. has been our longest episode to date by far. It's yeah. uh, it'll be like four hours or five hours the other time. Fuck that. Yeah, it's it's been a juggernaut strapped to a roller coaster, positioned upon a, a cruise liner. It's been bigger riding than Goliath. Yeah, on a turtle. <laughs> um, yeah. So screw you, sense makers. Well, <laughs> well, we'll see you again sometime. Maybe we'll talk to David Fuller if he wants to beat us up verbally for for all that we've done and otherwise you know note the disc accord the gin get your freak on do do what makes you happy yeah don't take too much ketamine psychoactives and don't start talking to machine elves forget about their blueprints if we do put them put them in the furnace leave them be all right (laughs) bye bye everybody adios bye